They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. This is the Occult Book Club Review with uh, the rabbit hole master, one-on-one himself, and me, Paranoid American. Uh, today we're covering a book called The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon. So it's, it's actually three, it's a, it's, a, it's a study, right? And it's three different books in one, technically. So It's a, it's a short, I mean, when we say three books, it seems yeah. like that would be a lot of pages, but... The whole the whole single compilation of all three books is like 130 pages or so. 130. I got 221 here on my. E-book. I mean, I mean, I've got a I've got a printed one here, um, but there's ones you can find on archive.org, and they're all. I mean, it's the same book. Yeah, uh, dude, it was so so. Before we get into it, I always forget. Plug your shit, Thomas. Oh right. <laughs> so, uh, paranoidamerican.com. Um, I've got some comics on there, all kinds of occult and conspiracy theory based comic books, all sorts of topics, uh, free to read. And if you really like it, you can go on Amazon and search for Paranoid American books and and uh, get some printed copies. And uh, what's it? Paranoid American on Instagram. Awesome. The one on one podcast on all social media platforms. Make sure to follow Patreon, patreon.com slash the one on one podcast, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. YouTube, all that shit. Rockfin.com slash the one on one podcast. We got Telegram. Join on there. Talk shit. Whatever. It's a fun time. And yeah, let's get into this shit. So the Occult Book Club, we're we're at it again. We're covering The Crowd, a study of the popular mind by Gustave Le Bon. He was a French was he a philosopher or for all, a philologist? I forget. A philologist, I right? think he was. No, he was a he was a psychologist, although he started out with archaeology psychologist. And, and anthropology, and then he got into, you know, sort of social psychology, yeah. Yeah, so he was born 1841, died 1931. He was a French social psychologist, and this is written in 1895, so five years before Nietzsche died, before Nietzsche kicked it, bro. Yeah, so he was a contemporary of, of um, Sigmund Freud and Nietzsche and mm-hmm. um, sort of that that whole movement he was a contemporary of it all 
So do you want to hear my favorite line in this entire thing? And, and we I mean, can... is, is it going to be like a big spoiler alert? Are you going to steal my favorite line? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think. Yeah, what's, what was your favorite line? And are you saying in the first book or in, in all three books? In the first book. Okay. And this is crazy. You're not going to believe this. I thought I, I think I already it. know which, which one it is. <laughs> I thought I highlighted it and I didn't. Does it have, is it about the unreal? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you have that quote? I, I've got it pulled up if I can steal it from you. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's my favorite part. I just want to get to that, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to be covering it pretty much in order because I think he presents it really well as far as, you know, the, the first the first two paragraphs, and this is public domain, so anybody wondering, you can find it online anywhere, and we can read right off the whole thing. It's not going to be anything with copyright, so I felt that we can cover the main two paragraphs and the first parts of the chapters and then go based off of that because i took plenty of notes and we're gonna have plenty of stuff to talk about so yeah go ahead and, and read that quote for me bro all right so so this is in in i think the introduction or at least in like one of the, the very early parts of the first book and the quote that i know that, that you were gonna bring up is in certain cases there's more truth in the unreal than in the real to present objects with their exact geometrical forms would be distort nature and render it unrecognizable and I'll, I'll cut it off there because we can we can read the whole context in a little bit. Dude, the entire time that I was reading this thing, I was flabbergasted, right? I, I like that word, flabbergasted. <laughs> because, dude, the guy is spitting some shit. The guy is spitting some stuff. He's shooting shots. So shots fired. Shots fired. Stand by. One second. Shots fired! Shots fired! He is going at it, bro, to whoever. So this was towards the end of the 1900s. There was turmoil. Towards the end of the 1800s. I'm sorry, 1800s, early 1900s, and there was turmoil in this time. So, But a lot of the stuff that he was talking about, we can definitely relate it to things that are going on today. And when you really start to break it down, and, dude, this they call this guy... He is known as the father of crowd psychology. Now, this piece of work, uh, this piece of work rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, and once we get into it, you can see why. But there hasn't been anything else at this level that's been written about this. And he also wrote, I think, The Psychology of Revolution. Was that the one? He also wrote some other stuff. That's He wrote that one. And, and one of his first works was something about like the psychology of people's it, roughly translated to that but the crowd by far was his most popular work and you know when it comes to studying people dude it's always fascinated me because when you really break things down to such a like microscopic level you really start to connect the dots as far as why things mean the things that they mean to certain people and why people act a certain way towards things. And it's almost nihilistic in a sense, because if you strip all the symbolism away from something, if you strip everything away from it at its very core, it's bullshit, bro. Like it's, it means not, it's nothing. We're just, it's all simulacra. And I would love to do the simulacra and simulation by John Baudrillard. It's very nihilistic of you. <laughs> it is, right? And the more... It's yeah, very nihilistic. I have that side of me too, bro, where I go, you know what? Sometimes I'll be doing research, dude, and I'll be 100% honest with you. I'll be like, what? 
what am I doing this for? For a fucking <laughs> podcast? For for what? You you know what kind of analogy I always bring up my mind when I'm doing something like that? And even if it's something even dumber, like I'm playing video games for an hour or something, and it's like, man, what am I just sitting here wasting my life away, you know, pushing bits around and pixels on the screen that ultimately mean nothing at all? Um, but I always like to remember those like Tibetan monks that go up in the mountains and they make these like huge intricate sand mandalas. And then once it's perfect and all the colors are like absolutely in line, they just fucking wipe it off and start over again. Um, So, I mean, I'm not equating myself to a Tibetan monk uh, with like enlightenment or anything, but I kind of feel that that, that same ephemeral um, quality of just like studying whatever you're interested in the moment or playing that game or just wasting time and watching TV I don't draw a huge difference between that and sort of that that same kind of concept of just acknowledging that everything's temporary. Yeah, right? Life is temporary, bro. All this is temporary. And here we are making comic books, Thomas. <laughs> are you, you going to drop that now? Yeah, I've already talked about it on the show. I mean, it's not, okay. it's not a, a secret anymore. I mean, I've been posting the, the concept art on social media, but... Here we are working on com- grown ass men working on comic books, drawing ourselves and hiring artists to do stuff. And here we are reading books about crowd psychology, inspiring creative endeavors along the way. I mean, that's what other noble cause is there other than inspiring other people to be creative? Absolutely. So I'm trying to get here. Let's get into this real quick. So I wanted to start. Did you want to start off with the introduction? Anything that stood out to you other than that main quote, which was in the introduction? Well, you wanted to go with the first couple um, paragraphs, I guess, of like page one. And that's that's exactly what I've got highlighted, too. So if you want to start there. Yeah, go ahead. Or I can read it. Go ahead and read it. Yeah, I don't have it highlighted. I have some other stuff in the introduction highlighted, but we can just work our way through this. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to go for the very opening paragraph and then we'll kind of reflect on some of the things that it brought up. And I've got like a whole bunch of different highlights all over the place. So I'll just read the, the whole first paragraph. So he starts out and he says, the great upheavals which precede changes of civilization, such as the fall of the Roman Empire and the foundation of the Arabian Empire, seem at first sight determined more especially by political transformations, foreign invasions, and the overthrow of dynasties. But a more attentive study of these events shows that behind their apparent causes, the real cause is generally seen to be a profound modification in the ideas of the peoples. The true historical upheavals are not those which astonish us by grandeur and violence. The only important changes, whence the renewal of civilization results, affect ideas, conceptions, and beliefs. Um, And he he goes on with with more language here, but I absolutely, I mean, from a conspiracy theorist standpoint, he kind of spells out here that there's this, like, this workings behind the scenes that's actually innovating these changes, and that people like to think that it's politicians and um, wars and sort of like these national movements, but really it's kind of the mentality of the people in masses. And this is going to, this is going to lead directly into this psychology of crowds where the crowd has all of this power that uh, has never really been seen before. And right after that, dude, I actually highlighted the memorable events of history are the visible effects of the invisible changes of human thought. Uh, Did you read that? I, I need a little sound effects thing for like a like damn that was deep or something. <laughs> Hold on, I got you, I got you. Finish him. I don't know. Uh, 
Whatever, dude. I, I have yeah, a. So I have a hype here. I mean, that's, we, we need some more hypes. There we go. But yeah, I mean, again, he says this in so many cool ways, and I'm going to point out a few different ones. But like you said, that the memorable events of history are the visible effects of the invisible changes of human thought. That's and deep, that, bro. That blows my mind, man. And and it's even deeper when you consider, again, this dude's writing it from the 1890s. That's what I'm saying. And before we get further into it, Thomas, can you let people know who this inspired? Like, who's and whose libraries was this in? Because it's a very influential piece of literature throughout history. Yeah, we were we were talking about this on the side. And the, the whole reason I think this book even came into my sphere is that I was doing research into like uh, authoritarian rulers and it got into how they were inspired by Edward's, Edward Bernays um, and that Edward Bernays himself was inspired by this this book, The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon, and that this book was found on all sorts of bookshelves of actual um, rulers like Mussolini and um, I think Hitler was a, a huge proponent of this book. And it wasn't, it's not necessarily because it espouses any sort of um, like crazy ideals. It is quite literally a, a handbook. It's a manual of like, here's how you control large amounts of people with very little effort. And it's almost like this, uh, is it Tai Chi or is it like Taekwondo where like you use the opponent's energy against them as opposed to like delivering powerful, you know, punches and kicks, you kind of like you like redirect their energy. And I, and I absolutely read this book as a way to do that. It's like this crowd-based jujitsu of, okay, the the crowd is going to develop and harness their own energy and you can just help direct it in ways and flows. And if you're actually standing in a, a situation where you do have crowds of people under you, this doesn't just become a novel, you know, thought experiment and a fun book to read. It literally becomes an instruction manual. Yeah. And that's scary because if you can literally write, like I said earlier at the beginning, this fascinates me because you can literally break it down. And later on, he compares people to automaton, which is something that Tesla talked about something that even Descartes talked about, which I, I find like, it's like the coolest word, automata, like <laughs> what is, and then it's broken down. We'll get into that a little bit later, but the next line on that is uh, the next got just one line the present epoch is one of these critical moments in which the thought of mankind is undergoing a process of transformation and then it has two fundamental factors are at the base of this transformation the first is the destruction of those religious political and social beliefs in which all the elements of our civilizations are our civilization are rooted the second is the creation of an entirely new conditions the creation of entirely new conditions of existence and thought as the result of modern scientific and industrial discoveries. So, yeah, when I was reading through this, I was like, how is this guy? And mind you, the, the first, I was listening to a lecture on this, and there was a guy who apparently he spoke French, and he said, because this is a translated work, so the one that we're reading in English is translated from French. And the guy that was giving the presentation on Le Bon, he talked about, how he read the original French version. And he says that the original French version has a whole different just depth to it. Because when I'm reading this, I feel like the guy has like almost like a snarky type of tone. 
Like you guys are all idiots. It, it reads very clinical too. It's very matter of fact. Yes. Like, like later on in the book, he'll he'll just be like, "Oh, and if if you try to apply this to an Argentinian versus someone from you know Berkshire, <laughs> then it won't work on this group of people, but it will on this group of people." But the way that he he writes it, it's just like you know, a equals one and b equals two, and and there's not even like a debate about it. And there's a touch of racism in it, a touch of sexism. So sexist he was sort of he talked about women like the most one of the lines was like the most emotional people in in society are like women and children like they they give off the most emotional response and it's like wait what damn that's that's kind of well any and he starts to describe certain crowd psychologies as being that of a woman which is mm -hmm. i mean it's part product of his uh his time but it also it reflects on the, his whole sort of philosophy in this book in, in my mind was taking these complicated individuals and realizing that if you put two individuals together, the, that new organism of those two individuals as a group isn't necessarily like all the complexities of the two people combined. It's all of the most simple aspects of them combined. Yes. And then if you get a hundred people and combine them together, you don't have a hundred times the complexity. Now you're just looking for like the lowest common denominator like everything that these hundred people have in common. And if it's only three things, well, now your group is essentially has the intelligence of being, you know, cognizant <laughs> of three things. Uh, and then, I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but that's essentially his process here. So the neck, I want to read this next line here. The ideas of the past, although half destroyed being still very powerful and the ideas which are to replace them being still in process of formation, the modern age represents a period of transition and anarchy. And, you know, we're talking about knowledge. We're talking about knowledge that's being passed down through generations. And he's talking about, like, hey, the stuff back then is still pretty good, but the stuff that's coming now, it's it's even more innovative in a way, right? So it's presenting all these new things and bringing forth the, these new points of views. And I have here one of the lines that really stood out to me because it's, Dude, it's all about the cancel culture that we're experiencing now. It's all about this mass psychosis that we're having now. The age we are about to enter will in truth be the era of crowds. And that's on the end of the next paragraph. Yeah, actually, let me let me rewind because I've got a statement that he makes right before that. That uh, it, it to me, it sounds like if, if you were reading this in context, it was like a Reddit post from 2022. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, there's some boomer complaining about, yeah. you know, the new generation. But it says, uh, okay, it says, while all our ancient beliefs are tottering and disappearing, while the old pillars of society are giving way one by one, the power of the crowd is the only force that nothing menaces and of which the prestige is continually on the increase. And he he's saying other things around this passage about how, like, <laughs> this is about to cause the downfall of society and people aren't going to respect each other anymore. And that, um, you know, we're going to revert back to like a primitive state because we're entering this era of the crowd. And, and immediately after that, this, he makes this statement and I had to read this thing over like three or four times. And then this, this clicked because it's so far removed historically from us, but he mentions, and again, this is 1896 that he's writing this. Um, and, he's thinking back to 100 years before. So now he's thinking back into the 1700s, which for someone writing it in the 1800s wasn't that crazy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think back to like the 1940s is essentially the equivalent here. 
uh, like World War II. So Gustav thinking back to the equivalent of his World War II, and he says right here, and again, this, this absolutely blew my mind, that scarcely a century ago, the traditional policy of European states and the, rival, and the rivalries of sovereigns were the principal factors that shaped events. The opinion of the masses scarcely counted, and the most frequently indeed did not count at all. Today, it's traditions which are used to obtain in politics, and the individual tendencies and rivalries of rulers which do not count. On the contrary, it's now the voice of the masses that have become the preponderant. So he mentions that a hundred years before he's writing this, crowds and individuals had nothing to say. They were serfs, essentially. Like they were still moving out of that, that middle age kind of serfdom dynamic, and that no one really... Like, he's, he is so forward-thinking here, and he realizes, like, okay, if the old way of, like, having these individual rulers that have command over large crowds, if, if their influence is going away, the only thing that's going to fill up that vacuum is the crowd itself, and holy hell, now that dynamic is going to completely flip, and now the masses have the control and not the rulers. Or, so you might think, if you don't follow the rest of his instructions. And did you know what was actually emerging at the time of his writing this, bro? Do you know what was coming out, what we see today, what really resonates with everyone? The, the newspaper was the, the main media of the time. So you had the newspaper coming out with articles, propaganda, whatever it was, and really influence, starting to influence the crowd, this crowd mentality. And... So you can see where right before we we had the newspaper, then what was the radio, then you had the black and white, then you had the regular TV, and now you have the internet with everything that's encompassed in that. And we literally have the, the amount of information that we have at this very second in time right now at 6.59 p.m., April 12th, 2022 <laughs> is more information than we've ever had at the, since the beginning of time ever. I think it's like in, I saw this quote the other day. It was like, you have more information in five minutes than somebody had in their entire lifetime, like the 1700s or something like that. Like some crazy. I'll just point out we're, we're talking quantity, not quality at this point. It, well, that's, that's subjective, Thomas. I mean, you could say that, you know, for a lot of people, the mainstream narrative and the main the mainstream media is the truth is nothing but the truth. So help me God, and they're gonna run to it, and and, and we're gonna get to why that is later on. So I have the entry of the popular classes into po political life. That is to say, in reality, their progressive transformation into governing classes is one of the most striking characteristics of our epoch of transition. And then I have here. The introduction of universal suffrage, which exercised for a long time but little influence, is not, as might be thought, the distinguishing feature of this transference of political power. And universal suffrage really stood out to me because what do we have now with these cancel cultures, right? And, and people know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about BLM. We're talking about Antifa. We're talking about all that shit because this is relevant. You're just still mad that, that Roseanne got kicked off her own show. You're still mad about it. What? That was that was like the, the epitome of, of cancel culture, you know, with, when Roseanne Barr <laughs> I don't got even kicked know off of the... Oh, I, I forgot how the, you're like 10 <laughs> years separated. 
I don't give a fuck about any of that stuff. What are you talking about, Roseanne? Which one are you talking about? Explain. So, the, so Ro- Roseanne Barr was a was a fairly famous comedian in the eighties and nineties, and she had a show called Roseanne, literally named after her. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it went away for I don't know, like a decade, and then came back. It had like this twenty eighteen reboot or something like that. And it was featured. It was her and John Goodman. I mean, it was like really popular show in the day. It was about this middle class, uh, one, like family that you know, like making stretching to make ends meet and having to run odd jobs and stuff. And she uh, she tweeted a picture of of some politician next to a Planet of the Apes screenshot because uh, oh. Helena Bonham Carter in makeup looked vaguely you know similar <laughs> to this like actual lady. I forgot her name. It was like Valerie something. And uh, anyways, cancel culture came out immediately, and within like the week, I think she got kicked off of her own show. They renamed the show uh, to the Connors, which was the last name, and then they they made her OD on opium, I think, and she died on the show from an OD, um, you know, opium overdose. But I mean, that was like I don't know. I was I was making a horrible joke that didn't land because I forgot you're like ten years <laughs> removed. But I don't watch uh, a lot of TV either, bro. Like I, I, you know, there's people who love the show Friends. I don't like that show you know all these weird shows that back well, then. roseanne was was kind of particular especially for like the crowd that gets offended by cancel culture uh so like you've got like the the bible belt sort of like uh, mm. blue collar hardcore followers of that particular show because at the time roseanne i think was like the only middle class like every other house on tv they were going to like a mansion and like they all had like nice cars friends, and kind of fresh like, prince of bel-air right type of or thing. friends like friends is another great example right like they all have like shitty jobs but they live in like downtown manhattan or something with like a really nice high rise uh, but anyways that 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 caused a whole bunch of stir like, i'm surprised you hadn't heard of it but i'm also not that surprised no so i mean i know about cancel culture but more of the you know I can't really think of anything, but we have here related to this because the more the more I read this book, the more I saw today, right? And mind you, this is at the early 1900s, late 1800s. I'm like, is this dude writing today? Like, what's he? Is he trolling people from today? Today, the claims of the masses are becoming more and more sharply defined and amount to nothing less than a determination to utterly destroy society at it at is as it is at it now exists <laughs> as it now exists jeez Woo. let's try that again today the claims of the masses are becoming more and more sharply defined and amount to nothing less than a determination to utterly destroy society as it now exists with a view to making it hark back to the primitive communism, which was the normal condition of all human groups before the dawn of civilization. Wow, that was embarrassing. But again, you're starting he, to see- He makes his stance fairly known here about what he thinks about communism as a, as a political <laughs> theory, for sure. I mean, he, he likens it to just straight, like the, the primitive- um, anarchic state of being at like the dawn of civilization and that any, anything that, that strays from communism or builds on top of it is automatically an improvement. That's essentially his, uh, <laughs> his passage here. The divine right of the masses is about to replace the divine right of Kings, bro. When I read that, I was like, God, <laughs> again, it was just, dude, it was just, Phrase after phrase after phrase of stuff that is resonating with me. Science promised us truth or at least a knowledge of such relations as our intelligence can seize. 
It never promised us peace or happiness. What's happening right now, Thomas? Oh, I want to identify as this. Well, science, science never said that you were going to be happy, bro. Science is science and science is saying the other thing. But the way you fuck the way you feel, this is, this is what this guy's saying. Like, you know what? Fuck the way you feel about something. The science is the science. That's the truth. That's whatever it is. And that's what's happening today, bro. I mean, you see it, how people are wanting to, like right now, bro, like one of the things that I'm going through, I have kids. They're teaching kids about sex at four or five years old, about wanting to identify something or this. It's like, bro, they don't even know what cereal they want to eat. And you want to tell me that <laughs> they want to identify as, as a toaster or something and, and they're going to make that choice. And they're at schools telling kids, hey, don't tell your parents. But if you feel like, you know, you're something else then it's okay. You can tell us, but don't tell your parents. What kind of fucked up shit is that, bro? You know what I mean? Like what kind of ideology, what kind of crazy ideology is that, that you're going to, you know, let kids talk. I mean, if you, if you want to go on a, on a whole different tangent, but I, I'd firmly believe that in the education system, there's almost a, an intent and it might be like a, like a subtle, like the crowd psychology style intent, not like an email you get in your inbox that says, you know, do these things. But there's almost this aspect of, of, teachers pitting their kids against the, the their parents because they look at you know they look at both of them with some disdain they look at the parents with disdain because how dare you send these kids to school like you're just I'm just a glorified babysitter and then unless the kid is like an absolute perfect student on day one there might be some disdain for the kid itself so there's <laughs> there's this really weird toxic dynamic I think and and I've got a chip on my shoulder because I went to public school and and I can count you know the the good teachers I had on like two fingers mm -hmm. um, but I but I really do feel that they're they're like there's this concept of injecting themselves in because they realize they can kind of change society oh, by, absolutely. by you know getting at them when they're you know like as as uh, some religious folks might say like you got to get them when the skull's still soft so yeah. you can like get that information in there you know no abso absolutely dude absolutely what you're what you're saying is 100% correct i mean get them while before they're fully indo you're indoctrinating them you know before anything else gets to them that's what you're doing you're injecting your ideologies into these young adults that are are not adult children these children when it's, it's the most formative years of their lives and and in these cases where it's the teacher i mean this teacher represents the only adult authority mm -hmm. source of information so for a better part um, of the day for a better part of the day and and even if you disagree with the teacher which is probably rare in younger grade levels but as you get older even if you disagree like you could legit get in trouble uh, for you know starting problems by just saying that you disagree with something. Mm -hmm. So that there's also this like top down, listen to whatever I say. That's the rule uh, mentality. And as we all as we all grow up and get older, we realize that like back in your youth, every adult that said something that was pretty sure of themselves was probably full of bullshit. Like they didn't they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't have their lives together. I mean, it might have been this 38 year old social studies teacher that made you go and fucking sit in the hall for the rest of the week. But yeah. like she was probably fucking getting drunk off of her, you know, her, mm -hmm. uh, her little, uh, whisk in, in the side closet. So. So at the very beginning at this introduction of this book, he really gets into what he's going to get into. And one of the things that stood out to me, history tells us that from the moment when the moral forces on which a civilization rested have lost their strength, it's final dissolution is brought about by those unconscious and brutal crowds known 
justifiably enough as barbarians. Civilizations as yet have only been created and directed by a small intellectual aristocracy, never by crowds. Crowds are only powerful for destruction. Now we're getting into some lizard talk, Thomas, <laughs> by a small intellectual aristocracy. Aristocracy. Jeez. Man. This comes up a number of, of times. This yes. this almost this exact same statement word for word just slightly rearranged and uh and this and this has a huge reflection too in like how America was founded, you know, 1776 and even towards like the concept for example of the electoral college, which is a, is a long boring uh -huh. concept, but essentially it boils down to this exact yes. thing that, yes. that originally someone realized well it's not pure democracy right this is this is the republic aspect of democracy but, like but where the you democracy have someone... is ruled by the crowd by the by the nation by the people well no you know? so but, but what he's saying here is that if you allow pure democracy the crowd will just result in destruction so They're check not this gonna... out the the next line here uh, in consequence of the purely destructive nature of their power their power crowds act like those microbes which have Hasten the dissolution of enfeebled or dead bodies. Now, yeah, I imagine the image. Everyone's seen the video of like the fox <laughs> yeah. that like dies in the forest, yeah. and like the ants in the mold like just make it like turn into a skeleton so in seconds. These crowds, they hasten right the 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 decomposition and go. And he says, when the structure of a civilization is rotten. It is always the masses that bring about its downfall. It is at such a juncture that their chief mission is plainly visible and that for a while the philosophy of numbers seems the only philosophy of history. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's that might makes right philosophy. Holy shit, bro. But I, but I do want to point out that I don't want to skate over that 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 little mention of the small intellectual aristocracy that uh, he's, he's saying here in plain language that if you don't want your civilization or whatever you're running, if it's your company or your, you know, your uh, political party, if you don't want it to just completely collapse and eat itself, that you essentially need this small intellectual aristocracy to guide the crowd and prevent it from just ultimately resulting in destruction. So this is like, having someone at the reins up on high, you know, this is that elite, <laughs> those lizards, the Illuminati, yes. the, the council of 12, whatever you want. Illuminati confirmed. There you go. Damn, yeah. Daniel. What the But he's fuck? saying like, you, you need that, that group to exist in order to prevent society because, from eating itself alive. Yes, exactly. Cause they have, here we go. However, in point of fact, all the world's masters, all the founders of religions or empires, the apostles of all beliefs, eminent statesmen, and in a more modest sphere, the mere chiefs of small groups of men have always been unconscious psycho psychologists, possessed of an in instinctive and often very sure knowledge of the character of crowds. And it is their accurate knowledge of this character that has enabled them to so easily establish their mastery. And he gets into Napoleon, right? He gets into Napoleon. He gets into, I, I think, a, a couple other people in history where uh, some people weren't able, and we'll get to it, some people weren't able to be manipulated a certain type of way because of their race, because of where they were from, their cultural differences. So, And that's where he gets into, hey, 
for the Spaniards uh, or the Anglo-Saxon. I think he talks about the Anglo-Saxon and the, I think the Spaniards, I think people in Spain, you know, this will work on them, but it won't work on these other people because these people value X, Y, and Z. And these other people really don't care all about that. So you got to keep that in mind. And mind you, the reason I bring this up is because the most famous rulers, and I wouldn't, I'm not going to say greatest because there are pieces of shit, but you have Mussolini, you have Hitler, you have all the biggest pieces of shit in history. They probably had this book in their library. Some translation. Or, and what Gustave Le Bon is saying here too is that even if they didn't, although the, the, the guys you they mentioned understand. probably did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if they didn't, they understood this and they might have just been born with this ability and didn't realize like why why is it so easy for me to become a captain and a general and a president? <laughs> like why does it just keep falling to my lap? And he's kind of explaining that it's because they intuitively understood this knowledge of crowds. And he and he goes on to actually say, and then if they understand the difference of like the ethnicities and the and the histories of the people, and he and he does emphasize that it's about like the national history more than like a racial group, because it's about like the previous conflicts that their fathers and their grandfathers might have gone through, that sort of imprinted themselves on them as they grew up, you know, through generations. They might not realize why they hate a certain type of person or a certain people from an area but it's probably baked in from some kind of historical aspects that they're just not aware of. So as we work our way into, that was the introduction, as we work our way into chapter one, wow, 10, uh, 35 minutes in, we have, what is a crowd, right? Because this is what the crowd, the psychology of crowds. Let's fucking get to it, Juan and Thomas. Just fucking do this, <laughs> right? We have here, what is a crowd? Laban defines a crowd as a group of individuals united by a common idea belief or ideology unlike philosophers crowds accept ideas superficially and utilize them as fuel for their revolutionary action according to Laban, when an individual becomes part of a crowd he undergoes a profound psychological transformation he is no longer an individual within this crowd but rather becomes an automaton an automaton is derived from greek and translates to self-acting an automaton, an automata is plural, is an abstract self-propelled computing device which follows a predetermined sequence of operations automatically. And there's also automata theory, which is a whole other thing. But Laban writes, we have here, he is no longer himself but has become an automaton who has ceased to be guided by his will. Okay? And you can see... An individual becomes a pawn who sacrifices his personal goals for those of the crowd. And I have another quote. In a crowd, every sentiment and act is contagious and contagious to such a degree that an individual readily sacrifices his personal interest to the collective interest. So that's the mentality of, you know, that's what he defines a crowd as and the so we have almost, he gets into it. He calls it like a supernatural force, which that's, I know you don't like the woo stuff, Thomas. I know you're, you know, you're not into <laughs> magic and stuff. I, ha- I have to accept it on my terms. But it's like, I don't, I don't like, lum- I don't like the word magic just because it lumps <laughs> in everything from David Copperfield to, to, you know, <laughs> to like actual K. magic to, yeah. 
it, it just lumps in too many things. It's magic with a K, Thomas. Because okay, thank you. At the end of the day, there seems to be something supernatural, something that just takes over. Have you ever looked into like mass hysteria? Like, like when people just fucking go, there's like been people who, who laugh to death in history. Have you mm -hmm. ever read into all those things? Like these things. That Although I, I tend to think that a lot of those are like uh, psychedelically induced and not necessarily just pure mental phenomena. You think so? I do. I mean, the, the few that I've been interested enough to look into, there's just as much evidence that there was, for example, a, a contamination of ergot that got into like their wheat supply for the entire town. There's some yeah. cases where there's been actual government intervention that spiked, um, you know, villages, water supplies with psychedelics just to see what would happen. Um, and a lot of these things get, you know, kind of glossed over as like, oh, it was a mass hysteria event. But my my skeptical conspiratorial sense is like, yeah, that's the cover story, my friend. <laughs> like there's a, there's a reason why everyone went into mass hysteria. But I, I understand the concept. I don't want to derail you. I understand the concept of mass hysteria. And I, I'm trying to connect here because so we have not every group of people is considered a crowd. Okay. But if they meet the criteria, they are. So I'm I'm the whole time while I'm reading this, I, I'm I'm just thinking to myself, I go, Am I part of a crowd? Am I you know, my you've got you've got the podcast crowd. You've got if you exactly. go to a PTA meeting, now you're you're in the parent crowd. You go to your kids' soccer games, you're in a crowd. These are all if you're in a, if you're in traffic and there's like one asshole driver, <laughs> and even though you're not communicating with all the people driving around you, you can tell when like everyone knows that like they know that there's an asshole driver on the road. Well, now you're in a crowd. You know what I mean of of people wielding dangerous objects <laughs> because. He writes here, in its ordinary sense of the word, crowd means a gathering of individuals of whatever nationality, profession, or sex, and whatever be the chances that, that have brought them together. From the psychological point of view, the expression crowd assumes quite a different signification. signification. Under certain given circumstances, and only under those circumstances, an agglomeration, I've never even fucking heard that word before. Agglomeration. Agglomeration mm -hmm. of men presents new characteristics very different from those of the individuals composing it. So what you mentioned earlier, right? They become this, its own organism, right? This whole, well, it's just a and blob. It, and and I think this is the key to this, this entire book. If you walk away with one form of understanding, at least to me, it was that like my estimation, you get 10 smart scientists in a room, right? I imagine that room just got 10 times smarter. Now it's like a hundred times smarter <laughs> than one, you know, non-scientist. Yeah. But really what happens is those 10 scientists get in a room and they collectively get dumber in many ways <sighs> um, because now they're at, they're at the will of the crowd and the, the human element of like, Maybe I've got the right answer, but if, you know, what's the, like, nine out of ten uh, agree on, like, a toothpaste, right? But that one dude, like, maybe there was <laughs> two dudes or three dudes that, that disagreed. But once that sort of um, aspect of, like, oh, man, I'm in the minority now, I don't want to ostracize myself from the crowd. So you start feeding into it. Just ex like you said um, a second ago that uh, individuals will start to sacrifice, you know, their own well-being and their own reputation, their own standing 
for the sake of the crowd. And it's not always out of like an altruistic feeling of like, mm -hmm. let me give to the crowd. Sometimes it's like, oh shit, I don't want to get kicked out of the crowd. Yeah. I gotta be, I gotta be in this crowd. So whatever it takes, you know, I'll, I'll bend a little bit to, to stay in here. The sentiments and ideas of all persons in the gathering take one and the same direction and their conscious personality vanishes. A collective mind is formed, doubtless transitory, but presenting very clearly defined characteristics. The gathering has thus become what, in the absence of a better expression, I will call an organized crowd. Or, if the term is considered, considered preferable, a psychological crowd. It forms a single being and is subjected to the law of the mental unity of crowd. So, he kind of puts parameters on to what can be considered a crowd, but what you said, dude, I mean, I'm thinking about what you just said about the scientists. Like is the quantum, is the quantifying power, right? Multiplied or is it dumbed down to the smartest person in that group? Because well, if, if it's a crowd, the way he's describing a crowd in these terms, it gets dumber by, by very definition in nature, 10 scientists that form a crowd in this context get dumber because, and as we'll, we'll figure out as we go through this, but he likens crowd consciousness to leaning more towards a reaction of emotions and reactions to, again, like that superficial, like that, that surface description of things and that rationality and deep discussion and like, hey, guys, let's take, you know, a five minute break and really think this through. That concept doesn't exist in the crowd. Uh, the crowd favors immediate impulsive reactions every single time. Um, almost never is a crowd going to say, yeah, let's take a 30 minute break. Uh, you know, the, the second the leader takes a 30 minute break, a new leader will kind of sprout up and, yeah. and take control of that crowd. And it's the way that he writes it here. Um, he's just saying like, this is just a matter of fact. You just have to accept that this is how crowds work as he's defining it as a psychological crowd and to go with the flow. And the rest of it is like, here's how you control it once this happens. I love the way that he puts it here. So special characteristics of psychological crowds, the turning in a fixed direction of the ideas and sentiments of individuals composing such a crowd and the disappearance of their personality. The crowd is always dominated by, by considerations of which it is unconscious. The disappearance of brain activity and the predominance of <laughs> medullar activity. The lowering of the intelligence and the complete transformation of the sentiments. The transformed sentiments may be better or worse than those of the individuals of which the crowd is composed. A crowd is as easily heroic as criminal. And the crowds that we've had as of lately are pretty fucking criminal especially those trumpers right those trumpers that get together <laughs> and they start doing stuff those never are the forget people never <laughs> forget that's right the insurrection and all this bullshit but again i had never really thought about that crowds have their own psychology and and until i really started digging into this and when i was reading about young and freud I thought for a second, I'm like, man, I want to start studying psychology, but fuck all that, dude. I mean, that's just a lot of, a lot of material to really, you know what I mean? Like, who are you to dictate what somebody, <laughs> you know what, what I mean? What scares me the most about getting deep into psychology is, is not how much you have to read, but how much you have to unlearn. And then after you're done with the studies, like not everything you read is going to be totally applicable. Yeah. So you have to like unlearn that too. So it's, it's like a two way street, right? It's like, if you go on a long jog, 
Like, you have to keep in mind that you have to run back home, too. Like, it's not just when you get tired, you stop. <laughs> Did you have anything else in Chapter 1 that you wanted to point out? Because I have some stuff on the influences in, in Chapter 2. I've got, a, I've got a lot, actually. But uh, you, you covered a whole bunch of it here to here, but I've got some passages that I think are worth reading through. Um, so he says in, in one of these that thousands of isolated individuals may require at certain moments and under the influence of certain violent emotions, for example, a great national event, January 6th, right? <laughs> <laughs> so for example, this great national event, the characteristics of a psychological crowd, it will be sufficient in that case that the mere chance should bring them together for their acts at once to assume the characteristics peculiar to the act of a crowd. And and this, in, in other words, the way that I kind of read this is that, you know, January 6th, well, I'm going to use January 6th since you brought it up. It might not be the best example, but this, you know, fully is crowd mentality, people making decisions that they wouldn't have if they were in like groups of two and three. But once they get into these huge, massive crowds that have the power to like overpower and influence, you know, cops from like moving out of the way and stuff, they make different types of decisions. But but what he's saying here is how that crowd can be teachers and it can be protesters and it can be violent militia people and it can be old grandma with her Polaroid that's just there to take pictures of the Capitol <laughs> that like they can all get just the just the fact that they all met on chance and they happen to have one thing in common. You know, they all were interested in being there on January 6th. That one commonality supersedes the fact that, you know, this lady's a grandma and this guy's a militia guy. Like they're essentially, you know, hand in hand walking into the Capitol building because they all were under this same sort of, of crowd influence. And spell. again, I'd say it, Thomas. A spell. spell. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, so I will fully submit that I believe in this kind of magic for sure. What kind of magic is that, Thomas? Uh, just the, the fact that you can have this like sentiment rise non-verbally almost and perpetuate enough through a crowd that it creates a national event that then the entire world talks about for years to come and gets cited in books like these these huge movements that just kind of start with a a small burst of energy that propagates mm. and reverberates and gets bigger and bigger i mean to me that's that's alchemy right that's taking this small amount of energy and turning As above, it into so a huge below. amount of energy yeah the big bang the Big Bang opened up, and the, you have the universe, and then, like you said, this little, I like the way you put that, makes my nipples hard, Thomas, where you said, <laughs> you know, this little bang of energy, boom, like this little, to kickstart it. And it's funny how that works, right? When, you inter when you're in, a, in a, a place where you know other people share the same ideology as you, like, you know that one meme where the guy's like, you know, when you're like in a crowd and you look over at somebody, have you ever been part of, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you could say it, but have you ever been part of a civil unrest have you ever done some shady shit i'm sure you have because you're you know you're part of the secret societies and stuff <laughs> yeah. and this is why you're studying this sort never. of book i i have never i've always been a completely upstanding citizen that's contributed to society in positive ways now if you weren't in the armed forces or in the military would you say the same thing <laughs> No, I mean, uh, honestly, I can't think of a time that I, I've been in like a crazy crowd like that, but I've been in like a, I guess the most tame example would be like a mosh pit um, at like a small concert. <laughs> and if, if, you know, if you start pushing a little bit harder and then start throwing some elbows and maybe throwing some headbutts in there, you know, grabbing some dicks. Other, yeah, nice. Yeah. Other people start playing in and now they're headbutting and throwing elbows and, and all of a sudden, you know, this tiny little catalyst 
turns into like, oh man, like someone got seriously hurt and now the show's getting canceled. Um, so I mean, in that sort of an aspect, although I wouldn't say it like a big public unrest, like I'm a much of a conspiracy theorist that I feel like I can't join anyone's, anyone's, uh, cause, you know, what was the quote of like, I wouldn't join a, a club that would have me. I kind of have that same mentality. So I, I find it hard to get passionate when I see other people getting really passionate. I'm like, Oh shit, this might be a Gustave Le Bon crowd <laughs> moment. Let me fucking, <laughs> let me back up and see how this plays out. You know, <laughs> fuck this shit. I'm out. You fucking just like leave. Yeah. Well, and, and honestly, I mean, jokes aside though, to me, this is like the, the most powerful reason to even read this kind of a book is that once you read this and you see what, even if you don't agree with how this works, like this is an instruction manual, how other people think that it works. Yeah. So once you see these, these mechanics in play and you recognize it, you can be like, Oh shit, I'm in a crowd right now. Or like, mm -hmm. Oh man, that, that looks like a psychological crowd that's forming over there. Let me, you know, keep my distance or let me, you know, adjust my strategy or my behavior likewise. And just having that foresight alone is worth reading, you know, a hundred pages of a book. Absolutely. Well, how many people are going to take the time to read some work like this, Thomas? I mean, you know, well, you get it on, you know, get it on audio tape and you listen to it while you're fucking smoking your bong or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> so, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, make sure to read your uh, open up to page uh, 150 of The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon, and we're going to read passage number one, line 35. What are you doing, bro? Are you flipping through what I'm telling you? I'm f I've got the, the book here, man. No, but I'm not. I'm just fucking kidding, bro. I'm no, no, even... I'm just I'm moving on to the next page here. <laughs> Go Cause ahead. I, cause and... I got another I yeah. got another passage from chapter one here. I thought you were like um, flipping to what I'm telling you. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> My book doesn't go that high. <laughs> so he he's he just kind of describes in this first book many different ways of describing this crowd concept and in, in mm -hmm. hopes that the reader like latches on to one of them. And I'm guilty of this, too. Where like I might explain the same fucking concept like four different ways just because yeah I felt that uh, while reading this book it was like the same idea over and over again a little bit it's like absolutely you, yeah but he he's just trying to like I guess in his mind he's like oh well Juan might be in the Puerto Rican group so he's not gonna get the first three explanations he's gonna get the fourth one when I mention you know like reggaeton or something he's gonna latch <laughs> onto it then um, I mean but like I think that's kind of the way that he's doing it is that. He he understood how sort of uh, revolutionary this work was, and mm -hmm. I, he probably felt it was important enough to just drive this concept. So an, another way that he drives this in different language is he says, whoever be the individuals that compose it, however like or unlike be their mode of life, their occupations, their characters, their intelligence, um, the fact that they've been transformed into a crowd puts them in possession of a sort of collective mind which makes them feel, think, and act in a manner quite different from which each individual would think, feel, or act if he were in a state of isolation. And again, we're just repeating the exact same stuff over and over, but he's driving in this point that when, when you become into a crowd, whoever is listening to this, talking to you, when you join a large crowd of people that starts to have like an opinion or like a motive of some kind, you're not you haven't gotten smarter and if anything you have forfeited some of your individuality to this crowd whether you like it or not as long as you remain part of that crowd and also mm -hmm. that like the movements and the decisions that that crowd makes um from you being in that crowd you're at like you made that decision with them you kind of provided the power for it and unless you remove yourself from that crowd and it starts to dissipate 
um, eventually all of these decisions become your own and you'll find yourself, you know, making bigger and bigger risks uh, because that's what the crowd's been doing. And you kind of like, uh, this might also be before your time a little bit, but like the, the 1990s of like Star Trek generation and shit. No, but of like the Borg, which was this like one mind. And if you became part of the Borg, you weren't an individual you kind of joined like every other Borg uh, in the universe. And the Borg was like this uh, kind of connected through like a neural network AI. So if you joined them, you kind of became like hive mind, you know, you, you, you forfeited all of your individuality. That's scary because I mean, to, to some people, but also it's comforting because it's like, you know, it's, it's giving up your personal responsibility and handing it over to the crowd. And as long as that crowd maintains power, like even the, the fucked up things that you're doing don't really have the same repercussions as they would if you were an individual. You know, like, he, like looting is a great example of that. But here's the thing, dude. He does make a... a he puts parameters on that where he, I think he gives an example. or I think it was the person that was giving the lecture that gave an example of like, if there's this this riot going on and and somebody you know falls unconscious and or loses their wallet or some shit like that like some people would either take that wallet or some other people would just put the wallet back where it was you know on the person if he's unconscious or whatever it is you know what i mean it's like in a way like remember it's a living organism so it's going to react at the time of when this is happening and sometimes it it's not all bad i'm not trying to get here that that all groups are bad because you do have these groups that, right? I mean, one example that just comes right off the top of my head is like the whole Martin Luther King Jr. the march that they did, where it was for civil rights. You know, it was for yeah. Well, he he's. I mean, this is in the very first paragraph of the first chapter, and he ends it with a crowd is as easily heroic as it is criminal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he he makes it clear, but I think that underlying that still like even those heroic acts of the crowd they're done from a much more primitive baser yeah. instinct that's like these heroic acts aren't necessarily being done from rational forethought um and and i think the danger of that is that a heroic act and a criminal act sometimes are like it's all depends on how you're affected by that thing happening to some people you know that was a heroic thing of breaking the fucking cvs window with a brick and other people, it was, you know, a criminal thing or heroic. So, yeah, um, like I, I feel it's, there's some jeopardy. But when you mentioned that, like someone losing their wallet inside the crowd, I would say that that's not necessarily like because the crowd isn't focused on that one person losing mm -hmm. their wallet. I doubt a crowd forms around finding a wallet. Fuck this guy. You know, yeah. <laughs> the, the crowd is formed around some other motive. So, like, yeah. sure, the guy loses his wallet and like a couple people help him out, whatever. But, like, that's completely separate from this, like, organism of the crowd. I'd almost liken it to, you know, a human being being a single organism. You get an infection or something. Well, okay, some mm. white blood cells and things, like, go and attack that specific local site. Oh, I get that isn't, you. That doesn't change your goal of, like, no, I'm, I'm driving to get a burger right now. Like, I don't care that I, I got this cut on my elbow in, in the process. You know, Damn, I kind of see it Daniel. in that same way. I love the way you break that down, Thomas. Damn, dude. You should start your own podcast, bro. <laughs> One day. What else I gotta you got let in... everyone else rise up first. <laughs> what else you got in chapter one? Uh, so, so he, I'm a sucker for when it gets like all scientific and starts breaking things in, in science terms. Um, and like when it gets more clinical, I don't know why I just computer programmer. I just kind of like fall into understanding it better. So he mentions at one point that just as in chemistry, 
Certain elements, when brought into contact, bases and acids, for example, combine to form a new body processing properties quite different from those of the bodies that have served to form it. So now he's comparing individuals to chemicals and you combine them. And again, it's like, it's, it's not a, an aggregation of the two individuals and all of their, their, um, it's the know, reaction characters. Yeah, dude, it's this new thing that's gets formed and you might not know what that it's thing a homunculi, is. If... Bro. <laughs> well, a homunculi is, I think you've got a little bit more control over what, what comes <laughs> out of it. Cause you know, what's going into it. But this is a way of saying that, like, you get, you know, me and Juan into a room, you get someone else into a room, like, the crowd that forms, maybe not between two people, but the types of crowds that can form just because of who comprises them can be these vastly different creatures with totally different characteristics. Um, I don't know, that that kind of blows my mind in a way because it's... It's alchemy. It's such a deep concept. Well, it's like this concept of, like, infinite possibilities, you know? Combine, like, all these different versions of, like, what if I took those three people out and put this one person over there? How does that affect the crowd? Oh, man. I would love to be able to, like, you know, from up sky alien ant farm, just be like, okay, (laughs) that turned into a riot and people started looting. What if I put, like you know, these guys in that group. And then what happens, you know, it's just it's like, like a the whole Freemasons of... form when you put Juan and Thomas <laughs> together, but then when you take Thomas out, the Freemasons break away. And then, you... so let's put this other guy in here to see what the fuck happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it is that it's, it's a, it's a science experiment, bro. <laughs> uh, and I got a couple others. I got, I got three others for to wrap up chapter one. So he says the conscious life of the mind is of small importance in comparison with its unconscious life, the most subtle analyst, the most acute observer, is scarcely successful in discovering more than a very small number of unconscious motives that determine his conduct. Um, and he has this other, this other really great analogy. Let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah. So he says, and this is an, this one. I think it was equally as deep as that. Like sometimes the unreal is is realer than the real. Quote. So he mentions that perceptible phenomena may be compared to the waves, which are the expression on the surface of the ocean of deep lying disturbances of which we know nothing. And again, this is like, yeah, yeah. Give it, give it another one of those. (laughs) But he's saying like, I, I love this visual. I'm a very visual person. So he's describing like you go out into the ocean and you see these waves moving around. Like those waves are not just from the wind brushing across the surface and like the things that you see, like that, that one little wave pattern might be affected by, you know, like, like 800 feet, a mile down underwater. There's something happening that's resulting in the the shape of these waves and the lizard. Yeah. The lizards are down there, you know, whipping (laughs) it up. But, and and I love my favorite part of that quote is where he says of which we know nothing. Like he doesn't pretend to know like what all the what different saying, factors bro. are that plays in. Like he was, he was humble enough to say like, Hey, this thing's at play, but I don't, I don't understand it, but I know that it's there. That's what, that's why I'm saying like in the, in the midst of all this stuff in at its very core, it's this unforeseen, unintelligible force that we don't know anything <laughs> about that. It's like almost like a, uh, it has this Lovecraftian aspect to it all where again, and this is during his time too. You know, what I mean, Lovecraft, the early 1900s. It's this force that's just running everything, and just makes me think of again, like an angel or like a Metatron, like controlling, you know, coagulating. And I know you don't like that shit, Thomas, but you know what I mean. This, <laughs> I, I like to think of it that way. And, and 
I saw a lot of things in here where at, at its core, it's like, yeah, this is very scholarly. This is very uh, multidisciplinary and like it's a very, you know, scholarly approach to the subject. But then homeboy throws in these things. It was like, yeah, we don't, you know, and I mean, we don't know what this is, but it's something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I honestly love his approach to all this, too. It's, it's kind of funny because in the beginning of the book somewhere, he he self-describes this book as like the first objective and non-subjective take sure. on psychology of crowds and <laughs> you get a couple paragraphs in and it's like <laughs> yeah and he's like anglo-saxons be like this and fucking spaniards be like this you know yeah. so he, he obviously didn't follow that completely all the way through but but those aspects of like the historical national identity separating the reactions of how those people form crowds like he he put some thought into it and i also think that uh, this was a, a period of time when he mentioned that a lot of power came from the top down. It came from principalities and from, you know, like rulers that were commanding how society lived and the, that the crowd hadn't quite yet taken full control over. Like this is on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution and and, the you know, America had only been around for maybe 100 years at this point. So this was, you know, really, really forward thinking. And it makes me think right back to to the beginning where he's talking about history, right, and all these ideas. And, you know, he's rubbing so, uh, shoulders with, with Nietzsche. And one of the things that Nietzsche brought forth was perspectivism. And perspectivism, because he's talking about not coming from a biased point of view, but perspectivism is that we're all comparing each other's perspectives and no one ever sees anything for what it actually is, an unbiased point of view, and mind you, he's rubbing shoulders with this guy. I'm pretty sure he was reading Nietzsche's work and like putting, you know. So it makes me even think that history itself is some sort of psychological crowd, if you really think about it, because these previous influences and these previous ideas are influencing what we have today. And it's just, again, an, uh, an amalgamation and just ever evolving. It's like this rolling blob. Like re I, I sometimes visualize, you know, reality as this blob that's just trying to, come together to form a homunculi you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta hit give yourself a, a hype hit on there i need my own soundboard eventually but i, I love that man i damn, i never considered Daniel. that what the fuck y'all got damn, this is we're talking about <laughs> this is my brain as i'm reading this stuff bro. i'm like damn bro i'm like two in the morning reading this i'm like damn like well, you know because well, we're talking you... about crowds and, and my mind never uh strayed from like people in the same area or at least living at the same time right like a crowd might be uh, a reddit forum where everyone just fucking dog piles <laughs> on some topic like that's a perfect example <laughs> of a crowd separated by um by space but man through history that's another good example where you could have people that all just kind of file in line behind some sort of historical ideology and uh and that itself is like this historical crowd and to add to one quote that i missed to add to this whole thing it is crowds rather than isolated individuals that may that may be induced to run the risk of death to secure the triumph of a creed or an idea that may be fired with enthusiasm for glory and honor. Such heroism, without doubt, somewhat unconscious. Such heroism is, without doubt, somewhat unconscious. But it is of such heroism that history is made. So... In a way, he's also like what tipping his hat off to people in crowds too to actually bring forth change. I mean, because maybe crowd although leads I, to revolution. I, 
So I'm still thinking of this, not in like, he no, he doesn't tip his hat or wag his finger at any point, the way that I read it. The way that I read it is he just matter-of-factly stating that that heroic actions that we're used to typically don't happen just in an isolated event, like an individual shows up and performs this heroic action. There's obviously examples of all sorts of variations of that, but but when you're in this large crowd, the individual might not be, they might be more susceptible to taking risks and thinking that they're a little bit more powerful than they are because they've got, you know, this adrenaline pumping and they've got a crowd of people cheering behind them and they know that everyone's on the same page and they're supportive of whatever they do. So maybe they're going to, you know, throw a punch at that police officer and, uh, and do this like, you know, heroic slash criminal action, depending on your perspective of it. Um, and that that wouldn't happen if it were just like one dude walking up to a police officer, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if he's got a crowd behind him now, all yeah. of a sudden that decision-making process doesn't factor in the same thing. It overrides and, it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, perspectivism and this is actually from, this is, this is the, uh, the sentence immediately leading up to there's more truth in the unreal than the real. And he, he dives directly into, into perspectivism. So I want to read this part off. And to me, this, I was just thinking platonic solids as I was reading this. And mm -hmm. he obviously was referring to this, but he says from the point of view of absolute truth, a cube or a circle are invariable geometrical figures rigorously defined by certain formulas we're, we're talking geometry right now, Pythagoras, right? And we're saying that this, this perfect cube and this perfect circle are fully defined. We know the math that makes them up. We can describe them from any angle. But we're going to see in the rest of the statement, this is almost assumes that like you know it's a perfect circle. You know it's a cube before you look at it. Because if you don't know that ahead of time, it might not look like a perfect circle from your perspective. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't know about that absolute truth. So mm -hmm. the way that he describes this, he says, from the point of view of the impression they make, and this is the, the cube in the circle, from the point of view of the impression they make on our eye, these geometrical figures may assume a variety of shapes. How unprofessional of you, bro. By perspective, the cube may be transformed into a pyramid or a square mm -hmm. and the circle into an ellipse or a straight line. And moreover, the consideration of these fictitious shapes is more important than of the real shapes, for it is they and they alone which we can see and that can be reproduced in photography or in pictures. So this is him saying that like, you have to know that the actual sphere and the cube do exist out there but it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter that those are the truth. Because if you go around telling everyone, hey, dude, th that thing that you're looking at, that's not a line. That's a sphere. You're just looking at it from the side. Yeah. You got to tilt your head and then it becomes a sphere. But like, what the fuck you talk about, bro? I'm looking at it right now. It's a line. Like there's nothing that's going to change if I turn yeah. my head. It's not going to make it a line. So this concept uh i mean this one just kind of blows my mind and, and if you get really deep into it it's not just this literal line versus uh, a sphere if you consider the platonic solids because now it's like the difference between an absolute perfect square versus something that you might find in nature which is not going to have perfect edges and round you know um, straight corners you're going to always have these little flaws you know we're we're living in this uh gnostic uh creation of the demiurge so we uh we don't have perfection here, but we we understand what like that ideal is and what the pattern is, um and and the reason why this tangent is kind of important is that I also think that you can think of the the crowd in this way where like he describes these facets of a crowd 
and great that that exists if they're like this perfect you know ideal version uh abstract that but we're coming not. up with but there's yeah there's always room for you know that that human element to, to throw a wrench in the works yeah and like the people on the outside are going to be saying like wait i don't like that motivation but i like this aspect of it because they're looking at it from this side of the room and then the people on this side of the room see the other things that the other person pointed out that they liked actually but then they you know what i mean so it's and this is where i can see because baudrillard was later on and he talks about simulacra and that you know the the whole idea, uh, the, the actual shape taking more importance than the idea. That's simulacra where we're giving importance to these empty symbols versus the actual thing. You know what I mean? Like, hey, hey, you're giving importance to this religious artifact, this statue of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ, but so for some people, that is Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like, because that's the way that they view it. They've been so indoctrinated that they start to adopt that thing as a real saint, as a real figure when in actuality it's just a symbol of what they want it to be so again we have plato influencing laban and then laban probably influencing you know baudrillard so you see this this timeline right maybe uh nietzsche was influencing laban too so you have all the big one is edward bernays too because edward bernays um was sort of was related to like modern day propaganda and he had this philosophy of that if you just repeat a lie to enough people enough start of to the time, it. this big masses, yeah, you you can you can create like you can make the the falsity the truth and the truth the falsity just by public perception, and mm -hmm. that public perception matters way more than the truth does, um, and it can survive longer than the truth can. Yeah, and I and I and I pointed this out earlier because again, even this, you know, the Republic is also uh, just how this book is a very influential piece on. Two separate people, you know, the Nazis and then Martin Luther King Jr., like two different polarizations, which that's also part of the psychology, uh, the psychology of crowds. What do you have on chapter one so we can move on to the... So, yeah, the last quote that I got here, which is one of my favorite ones. So let me see if I can find it here. The chapter, dude, I'm telling you, chapter one is just loaded with, like, quotables, and we could go on forever and ever on this. I would have highlighted see. the whole fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that, too. Uh... Okay, he says that, and this is in the context, this is again where I was mentioning like uh, a grandma and a school teacher can form a group with a militia and now they're in like the same crowd with the same motivations. So this is a, a quick statement on sort of emphasizing that. And he says, from an intellectual point of view, an abyss may exist between a great mathematician and his bootmaker, but from the point of view of character, the difference is most often slight or non-existent. And again, this is saying mm -hmm. that the fancy way of saying that like they're both two dudes, you know, they both, they both bleed red and they both fart and they both, you know, fucking get sick and have all the same human flaws. And just because one guy might be this academic genius with 10 years in the field and, you know, prestige and awards, like if you put these two people in a crowd, they're not that much different from each other. Like you yeah. removed them from their what makes them different, and you've put them together in what makes them the same. And you can you can almost be guaranteed that the the thing that makes them the same is not going to be you know ten years of prestige. It's going to be some more baser, common, simple sort of a rudimentary emotional instinct. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, I think you read the whole quote because I remember that one also standing out to me, and I really like that because again, it shows. Uh, the polarity, you know, the fictitious polarity that society really imposes on on hierarchy, right? Like, oh, I'm better than you because 
I'm more prestigious than you. I have more money than you. So automatically it's like, nah, at the end of the day, bro, you're not that different than each other. You know, just, just cause you got more commas in the bank account doesn't mean really anything at the end of the day, when you strip away that individual, you know, that individuality and you put it in a crowd, y'all are the same people. You know what I mean? You're just another. I'm system. not going to try to quote the exact thing, but there's a uh, for skull and bones, right? Of course. Um, they've got this, they've got this big portrait with four skulls on it. And there's some German saying that they, adopted from perhaps like the Bavarian Illuminati, but the, the saying roughly translates to, to something about like a king and a pauper and a beggar and a madman I'm making those things up. They're essentially like, you know, try to point them out in this picture. And it's just four skulls. And it's like saying like, great, whatever they accomplished in, in life doesn't really matter because here they are. They're, they're all just skulls. Now they're exactly the same. They have no more merits between each other. And it, it's to, in the skull and bones context, this is a reminder of how insignificant you are in the tome of history. You know, it's like mm -hmm. watching those videos that show you like how small a person is compared to like the entire solar system. And then the galaxies beyond that. And then the super galaxies beyond that, like you're, you're more infinitesimal than like the smallest piece of, of like a grain of sand. Um, so it's, it's another way of saying that, but, it, but again, like back in the context, it's saying that, we're also insignificant in the way that we kind of like relate to each other, that these crowds just kind of form inherently. Absolutely. And I have here, so we got to make sure that my battery doesn't die on my tablet. We have Laban. So we have chapter two, the sen sentiments and morality of crowds. And Laban argued that a crowd forms when an influential idea unites a number of individuals and propels them to act toward a common goal. Although, although these influential ideas are never created by members of the crowd, but are instead brought into the world by the minds of great individuals or influential, since these, <laughs> since, since those who are part of this crowd are mediocre, they are incapable of understanding those ideas in their original state. <laughs> <laughs> so for this influence to happen, the idea needs to be broken down for the crowd to understand. And I have a quote here. It says, ideas being only accessible to crowds after having assumed a very simple shape must often undergo the most thorough, thoroughgoing transformations to become popular. It is especially when we are dealing with somewhat lofty philosophic or scientific ideas that we see how far reaching are the modifications they require in order to lower them to the level of the intelligence of crowds however great or true an idea may have been to begin with it is deprived of almost all that which constituted its elevation and its greatness by the mere fact that it has come within the intellectual range of crowds and exerts an influence upon them so <laughs> we can pause there because we, we said a lot, okay? We, we have here this idea that to ignite a crowd, it all starts, I think we mentioned at the beginning, it all starts with this idea from the lizards, from this aristocracy, from these higher intellects. But to them, this idea is this crazy complex thing. So I, I, I don't have an, uh, an example to kickstart this breakdown, but it, it makes perfect sense because... <laughs> But then he he says that people in these crowds are barbarians. They're mediocre. They're they they can't really think for themselves. So you take this idea and it's like a game of telephone. You break it down so the 
again, not to be mean, but the dumbest person or the lowest person of intellect in that crowd can understand it or Absolutely. pretend to understand it. Because how many, have you seen all these videos, bro, where they interview somebody? Why are you here? Oh, uh, well, I really don't really know. I'm just here. Cause there's a lot of people who just cling on to that. Just well, to well there's good. a good explanation for that. And it fits directly into what we're saying here. And that's that. Let's let's imagine like the a spectrum from the most complex idea to the most simple idea. So in this example, let's say the most complex idea that this crowd gets behind is the entire communist manifesto. You know, the entire written works and all of the intricate details. But you're not going to show up at a crowd that's chanting and where people have all sorts of different motives and just start reciting word for word of the communist manifesto, you're going to lose all of them. Mm -hmm. So what eventually happens that, and, and again, this is like an oversimplified version, but that, you know, communist manifesto approach might essentially result in a crowd and all their chanting is whose streets are streets for, you know, four hours as they go around through a city. But it's essentially like the, the motivation of this communist manifesto, you know, communist thinking that results in that crowd being formed. And then as they organically figure out like what's the highest level of thought we're capable of. And in, in one instance, it might just be whose streets are streets and marching up and down and, and hitting cars and stuff. I mean, that, that might be as advanced as that crowd is capable of, of performing. And the problem there is that if, if they were to go any higher then they lose a whole section of that crowd falls off. Yes. You know, if they like, they elevate it to like, hey guys, let's not just chant down and with rant the Jews. And things. Wait, what? Well, yeah. You got that and, Homer and Simpson the... meme where he goes into the into the hedge. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, then the scary thing of that too is that once someone says something crazy like that, someone that wasn't in that crowd might be like, oh, did someone just say you know something really ignorant? And they kind of like wander in, and now they're part of the crowd, and yeah. they might have just lowered the <laughs> IQ of the crowd even more. And what and what Lebon kind of kind of says here is that. There's not a critical mass when you add like another person and the crowd gets a little bit smarter. Like every time you increase the size of a crowd, it, it only gets dumber or it, it plateaus. It never, ever increases in complexity. It never asks for more philosophical debate. If anything, it, it caters more towards chants and slogans and like very easy to like repeat songs that rhyme. Like these are the things that crowds tend to, you know, really adopt. And I have here impulsiveness, mobility, and irritability of crowds. The crowd is at the mercy of all exterior exciting causes. This so, is the exact the exact quote that I have highlighted too. And reflects their incessant variations. The impulses which the crowd obeys are so imperious as to annihilate the feeling of personal interest. Premeditation is absent from crowds. Racial influence. Two, crowds are, are credulous and readily influenced by suggestions. Suggestion is very important because we're going to get into that later. The obedience of crowds to suggestions. The images evoked in the mind of crowds are accepted by them as realities. Why these images are identical for all the individuals composing a crowd. The equality of the educated and the ignorant man in a crowd. Various examples of the illusions to which the individuals in a crowd are subject. The impossibility of according belief to the testimony of crowds, the you unanimity, the unanimity of numerous witnesses is one of the worst proofs that can be invoked to establish a fact. 
the slight value of works of history. Uh, three, the exaggeration and ingenuousness. Is that, did I say that right? Ingenuousness mm-hmm. of the sentiments of crowds. Crowds do not admit doubt or uncertainty and always go to extremes. Their sentiments always excessive for the intolerance dictate dictatorial and fuck this dick that's that's a really important uh part right there that you covered that go ahead read number four for me thomas (laughs) well well hold on that he's saying that okay (laughs) the (laughs) the intolerance (laughs) dictatorialness and conservatism of crowds the reasons of these sentiments the servility of crowds in the face of strong authority the momentary revolutionary instincts of crowds do not prevent them from being extremely conservative and that crowds instinctively are hostile to changes in progress. And you, you mentioned another thing too, that, that crowds essentially don't even acknowledge doubt. Like they, they're mm-hmm. incapable of doubt because doubt, again, a, a doubt uh, represents like, you know, you've got this momentum, like we're marching towards something, you know, we're, we're getting to the capital at no point does the crowd collectively stop and be well, like, hold up, not that, not wait that, a minute. Though. Yeah, yeah. Not that. yeah, let's let's think about this. Is this a bad idea? Like, nah, bro, like like the momentum that's building, like that that fuels the crowd. Don't go into the Capitol building. Until... That, that looks like a bad idea. <laughs> no, no, no. Fuck this. We're we're going so, balls to the wall. And and this this uh, is a good lead into the the next line that I kind of um underlined here and it says and keep this in mind right this this crowd that's like moving almost out of control it can't stop for reflection it it can't acknowledge doubt and Laban says a crowd is at the mercy of all external exciting causes and reflects their insistent variations this is what you you mentioned Mm -hmm. and this again is like the crowd at, at a certain point it's so malleable and so um, easy to manipulate that all it takes is someone to see, Oh, there's a crowd over there. Like I can go and stir shit. And and you see this, I mean, you can probably see in certain crowds where there'll be like a person that's not necessarily involved in it. Like, Oh, you're going to let them say that, bro. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like those dudes that are like trying to what start a fight with somebody, <laughs> but, but this is a, this is a perfect example of you got like a whole bunch of, you know, guys that are all aggressive and like someone's ready for a fight. All it takes is for some guy in the back, like, yo, throw a punch, bro. Throw a punch. And then, bam, that like? catalyst is there. And, yeah, you can let him say that, you know? Ever, bro, that's like being in high school all over again. Like, that's how fights got started. Like, damn, bro, you're going to let him you gonna let him do that to you? Oh! Well, and, well now, uh, apply crowd mentality to high school age, right? So yeah. if, if you acknowledge that a crowd is only as smart as the dumbest person in it, and the crowd is comprised of, you know, adolescent teenagers – What's the what's the lowest common denominator of a bunch of like thirteen to fifteen year malleability. old malleability? I mean, they're, you know? they're yeah, they're that much more reactive and that much more malleable, where they can literally take any. It just takes. So I want to paint a picture, right? Because we have at the beginning, right? We have history. We have the one individual, and then we have. He are, you multi- gonna, are you going to turn this into a monad thing? No, 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 no. So we have, oh, okay. I mean, maybe we have the monad, right? The one, the, the, the one individual. And then it starts to multiply until you get, right? We've talked about the psychological parameters of what, it con- you know, constitutes a psychological crowd, right? So you have the one person, the one man. 
and he hooks up with other people and, and, and you have a congregation of people now. So you have a you have a group, you have this blob, you have a school of fish, if you will, right? A, a school of fish moves together, right? When there's a predator in its midst, you, you see a move together, bobbing and weaving. So think about that. We have this just collective hive mind of people. And I really want to carry it into what leads this group of people. So we have the idea sparking, right? We have these effects that are sparking this this movement of people coming together and wanting to march towards one singular, one singularity, if you will, right? Where they're all going to achieve whatever goal that is at the very end based on the influences on the outside. And <laughs> this is where... So I wanted to finish this up at number five because these are the sentiments and, and morality of crowds. The morality of crowds, the morality of crowds according to the suggestions under which they act may be much lower or much higher than that of the individuals composing them. Explanation and examples. Uh, crowds rarely guided by those considerations of interest which are most often the exclusive motives of the isolated individual. The moralizing role of crowds. So this is just a list that he put together of the sentiments and you know, what, what influences crowds really. So, well, there, there's a good distinction there too. Cause we've been talking about the, like the mental um, common denominator of the crowd. This is, this is how much the a crowd itself can understand as its own organism. But he goes on to mention in that last part that just because the crowd might be thinking at a lower level, doesn't mean that the lowest people in that crowd operating at that lowest level aren't capable of doing great things because they're part of this crowd. And this could include those, those heroic acts uh, where you've got, you know, a bunch of schlubs and, and procrastinators and people that necessarily might not follow through or do anything. Once they're part of a crowd that might actually put them in, you know, in position to where like they follow through on some act that actually does have some great, you know, social change, maybe like a law gets passed or, or, you know, some new mm -hmm. sort of momentum starts taking over because they were part of that crowd and had place in it. Whereas, as, you know, themselves, they wouldn't have done anything more than play Fortnite, you know, that weekend. <laughs> um, but now they were part of this big thing. So there's that that sort of aspect to it. I think that's important to acknowledge. Making sure my fucking tablet doesn't die here. And so what I, what I wanted to get into, right, so you have all the aspects that you mentioned about what pushes this congregation of people to do whatever it is that that they want to achieve, right? And I've got a really scary modern example of this too. And Ow. and just the word just the word itself, consider this, but you've got large crowds of people that shared maybe just one or two common interests. This is what defines a crowd, right? Freemasons? And we're hold on, no no no, hold on. It's gonna be even worse than that. So you've got these large crowds that, that share common interests, and then you've got these outside forces, these, you know, these kind of like elites that see these crowds and can influence them and sort of inject their influence on them and decide where these crowds go and what those crowds... Like they, they define the goal of these crowds. Mm -hmm. And the most obvious example would be the concept of an influencer, right? What does every little so, kid in school want to do now? They want to be an influencer, that's my next that's my next thing here because we have income leaders, right? Laban proposed it is a leader of a crowd who communicates simplified ideas to the crowd and by doing this the leader unites the crowd together and stimulates it 
to act. And we have here two quotes. The majority of men, especially among the masses, do not possess clear and reasoned ideas on any subject, whatever outside, any subject, whatever outside their own speciality. The leaders serve them as guide. How numerous are the crowds that have heroically faced death, death for beliefs, ideas, and phrases that they scarcely understood? So we have, again, how you said, the influencers, the people who come in and they really take, and they're the, the poster child of these movements, right? These people. And, and if you were to go and look at like a, like a protest as an example of a crowd, in my mind, these are the guys that, that are holding that megaphone and that are saying, you know, like Alex Mike Jones. Jack and everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, Alex Jones is a good example. Like he where he shows up and he starts shouting in a megaphone, a crowd will inevitably form around him and fully, you know, becomes this crowd organism, essentially, with him as the head. So we have here on the ideas that these leaders utilized to control these crowds the bond rights i have a quote here by many they are considered as natural forces as supernatural powers they evoke grandiose and vague images in men's minds but this very vagueness that wraps them in obscurity augments their mysterious power they are the mysterious divinities hidden behind the tabernacle, which the devout only approach in fear and trembling. Okay. I fucking <laughs> He's getting deep with the, the esoteric references at this point. Yes. So we have this person, right, with this super magical power. And, I mean, you can really arguably say, regardless of the fact of, we know that Hitler was a piece of shit, but the way his charisma, the way that he would yell and his vibrato, right? The way he would control his breathing and his mannerisms while giving these crazy fucking speeches about fucked up shit that they were going to do to a certain group of people. People looked up to that. People were worshiping. They were, they deified these people. And I use Hitler as one of them because, you know, a lot of people. Well, this is a good example because now, because a lot of the time I'm reading this book, the crowd essentially is like, uh, enough people that I can see filling like a courtyard or something, mm -hmm. right? Or like a big mall maybe. But like, again, like Laban was read by not just tiny little, you know, middle, middle people like me that are sort of like just living life, but also by these rulers of countries. So that these same exact principles that would apply to uh, 200 people in a courtyard applies to the entire country of Germany or, <laughs> You know, if, if they're they're running and they're trying to, like, take over other countries, it, it applies to, like, the entire nation at some levels. Well, because that's the thing, because, I mean, this is what he's getting at ultimately is that a nation can be a crowd. I mean, and, and you're... Well, well, think about patriotism, right? Like, the whole, like, you know, they hate us for our freedom. Nationalism how easy, and all that shit. And how, how, how overly reductive and simplified is that, you know, you hate me because of my freedom... Um, but that's such a, a common, you know, like patriotic nationalist sentiment that if you say it, everyone knows what you mean and they might be able to agree with it. And I, I would almost argue like that would be a crowd. People that can congregate mm -hmm. around that concept and agree with yeah. it are in some way forming a crowd around it. Yeah. So we have these leaders, right, that come out. And I'm trying to read my own fucking handwriting. Individuals who get 
so wrapped up in these obscure ideas, start to accept these ideas as religion, even if they do not have any religious associations. And we have a person is not religious solely when he worships a divinity, but when he puts all the resources of his mind, the complete submission of his will, and the whole-souled ardor of fanaticism at the service of a cause or an individual who becomes the goal and guide of his thoughts and actions. So, yikes. Shots fired, shots fired. He's talking. <laughs> He's getting woo-woo. He's getting woo-woo because... Laban also talks about simulacra, about how the masses adopt sometimes the opposite of their beliefs. So, the reason I put this here is because he talks about, or at least in the lecture that I was listening to, Atheism. Were it possible to, to induce the masses to adopt atheism, this belief would exhibit all the intolerant ardor of a religious sentiment, and its exterior forms would soon become a cult. So, a, a cult. How prophetic. I mean, this is like a, a great way of... I mean, the, the dude was telling the future Bro, 100 years. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, it, it makes total sense. It's, it's just how the mass hysteria... So, when you have the media, so people are taking these obscure ideas no matter how crazy it is right about you know teaching children about sex and about becoming trannies at age of four or whatever and all this shit they start taking these obscure crazy ideas and they start accepting them they start accepting no matter how crazy it is and when you come and talk against that you're ruled a conspiracy theorist you're ruled a heretic you're ruled whatever else is the opposite of what their ideology is that they have adopted through what through the simulacra that was presented to them through these empty ideas, empty symbols that was presented to these people. So again, how you're saying this dude is, this dude is talking that shit. Bro. This dude is on some next level stuff. Well, I read something else in that too, where, and I don't know if this is what he meant, but especially in that concept of like atheism and religion. And it made me wonder that if someone going into this crowd that has no concept of religion, right? They haven't been through and had like a religious experience and, and kind of been through that, like that cult worship mentality. If they don't recognize it for what it is, I wonder if someone that has a religious background could maybe pick up on that easier. Or for example, if you've got a very strong yes. religious constitution yourself and something in the crowd conflicts with that, I wonder, is that like, uh, is that like an extra defense for you where it's like, wait a minute, I already have these very firm religious beliefs that may, maybe don't make any sense, but they're mine. And this crowd is, is like conflicting with that. Is that, is that something that happens or is it maybe like, I already know how religious thinking works and I can slip into that state of mind. And this is just another version of religious thinking. So let me just slip into the crowd's version of this religion at the moment. I mean, it's probably different for different people, but I wonder yeah. if, if, if he ever like dove into that, because I didn't well, read any of that through here. Well, here's the thing, dude. Yeah, and again, I've I got a lot of stuff from uh, I read the book, then I got lectures and stuff. So this is where I'm compiling everything, and you can use this. You can use this crowd psychology in a religious organization as well. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. It's propaganda to make people believe what you present to them. I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, you can use this crowd psychology to Thanksgiving dinner with your family. If you really, <laughs> if you really wanted to start using that vibrato and like start pounding your fist on the table. <laughs> so I have here, I'm trying to weave this together. We have 
chapter three, the ideas, reasoning, power, and well, hold, hold on, hold on. Before we jump to, to chapter three, I've got one more from I've got one more from chapter two here. Go ahead. And this goes back into like that very uh, static, linear, matter of fact way of thinking. And and I love this one because this to me it's, it goes back into that instruction manual style. And he says <laughs> that a crowd thinks in images. And the image itself immediately calls up a series of other images having no logical connection to the first. We can easily conceive this state by thinking of the fantastic succession of ideas to which we are sometimes led by calling up in our minds any fact. Our reason shows us the incoherence there is in these images, but a crowd is blind to this truth and confuses the real event with that, the deforming action of its imagination superimposed thereon. So this is like, this goes into that same idea that a crowd doesn't stop to think and reflect. You could just like make up some, like a, like a straw man is a good example. I could just like in a crowd make up a straw man and there's that dude that's like, that guy kills babies or, you know, just like some crazy shit. Is that Moloch? Yeah, but exactly. Moloch. But but if, if it evokes an actual visual image in their mind, and they know that it's not Moloch, right? Because mm. Moloch's a fucking pagan god from history. He's not this politician that's in front of you. But the fact that someone says that's Moloch, you bring up the image of Moloch. You think of like, oh, man, you know, sacrificing children and pain and anguish and evil. And, and now all of those emotions around this fictional image that you know is not that guy but the emotions that it brought up, you now attribute to that guy. Mm-hmm. And even though there's no logical connection between those, um, the, the crowd mentality bypasses that because they don't stop to think, oh, wait a minute, Moloch's a pagan god and Moloch might be a fictional entity that's really a representation of you know different emotions and things like that. But that, that, that process never exists. It just keeps going on to the next. And on, on that, bro, because I have, I have something on that I have here. Sentiments are simple and exaggerated, right? And crowds only see things as a whole. So they don't focus on the intricate details of it. So we, we, we establish that they have an idea, right? The lizards give you an idea and they break it down in the simplest form, even if it's a fraction of the original idea to present, to feed it to the pigs, right? To feed it to the, to the sheep, to run with that, right? So they don't see things as a whole. And these leaders, they use embellished vocabulary is used to manipulate polarized morality. So uh, some ethical... Also known as rhetoric. This is the skill of, of having rhetoric. Yes. Knowing what to say, how to say it, when completely to say based it. on who you're talking to, you know? So you get polarized moralities, right? So you're either with us or you're against us. And uh, crowds are incapable of reasoning, and at the beginning, he compares them to barbarians. Crowds only see in terms of images because of their imagination. Now, this is where I get to what you're you're getting at. And I don't know if it was Laban or not, because, again, I read this. Then I started diving into some other extracurricular activi- uh, research with the lectures and videos and different videos and stuff. And as long as they have good theatrics... All is good to them. Now, uh, this particular lecture that I was listening to, the guy talked about the Romans, about even when life is not so good, as long as they have good entertainment, good food, good entertainment, they fall into the illusion that all is good. 
regardless of the actual facts. They start to take this weird psychology of like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. No, as long as I have good entertainment, right? The Roman Empire is crumbling yeah. around us. There's inflation. There's all this shit. Well, imagine this too. This is like, we oh, We got shit, some good uh, Marvel movies coming out though, I, Tom. I just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I just got a letter from the IRS. Um, my, my job's cutting my hours. Like all these horrible things are happening. But fuck, bro, like the new Marvel series the just dropped Spider-Man, on Netflix. Bro. And, yeah. The new Spider-Man, bro. The new Spider-Man movie. But this isn't even that groundbreaking, right? This is the whole like a uh, bread and circus for the masses and yes. religion is the opiate crowds, and just keeping people entertained. Crowds do not reason. They only imagine, okay? So they only imagine, you know, this whole movement that they're going through. They have a great leader. They have a great person who's leading them with all these crazy fucked up ideas no matter how crazy they are. But they imagine this utopia this the the end goal the the end all be all of where we're gonna get to because of this so they and that's what keeps them going that's what keeps the crowd momentum going is these ideals yes and and a scary here's another he gets into this and i don't know exactly how he describes it but you imagine that each person in this crowd to make it manageable again let's say it's like 100 people right each of those 100 people in the crowd have a completely different version of what utopia means to them <laughs> Yet they're all working towards what they perceive as like a shared utopia. But I mean, guaranteed, a hundred people collectively are not gonna agree on like what the perfect society is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let alone like three people. Well, polarized more, uh, more, uh, you know, moralities. The the polarization even within the crowd. You know what I mean? So, but they can't acknowledge that because there's no time to step back and reflect exactly. and compare differences. So that you never stop to think. Wait a minute, this utopia that I'm imagining might not be the same as that dude that's marching next to me that has that nasty looking tattoo on his arm or whatever, you know? And I have here more times than not crowds do fucked up shit. A lot of the times, right? Although is that a, is that a direct quote from the bun? No, that's a direct quote from the one-on-one podcast. <laughs> Although some crowds are not evil and I have a quote here. Our savage destructive instincts are the inheritance left dormant in all of us from the primitive ages. In the life of the isolated individual, it would be dangerous for him to gratify these instincts while his absorption in an irresponsible crowd in which, in consequence, he is assured of impunity gives him and gives him entire liberty to follow them. So here we are in this crowd. Me and Thomas were at this neo-Nazi uh, crowd that were protesting, you know, for the rights for the neo-Nazis, whatever. And. No matter what we do, we feel this sense of invincibility when we're in this crowd, right? Because it's almost like Kundalini, bro, where their mind morphs their body. So they feel invincible. And you see this, bro. You see be people being beat to, to death. You know, like some of these videos that came out from the Antifa riots and BLM and all these people. There was people being bloodied, bro, on the ground. Like being beaten. Like they were just ragdolling these people on the ground. Because why? Because... And when they're in this aura, right, this crazy aura that they're in, they feel this sense of that they don't have to take responsibility for their actions. Well, and, and especially if they see one person do something that technically would normally get you arrested or, you know, um, in a lot of trouble, they see someone do that action and then not get immediately face the consequences mm -hmm. of it. Then two people do it. And then once, you know, three people have monkey done it, see, well, monkey hell. Do. 
Yeah, and and this, I mean, you could correlate this to like the the January sixth, right, where people are just like breaking into windows and entering the Capitol, and it's like, well, those ten people did it. Why can't I do it? They didn't get in trouble. I mean, mm-hmm. it might have taken them like a year and a half to get in trouble for it, uh, but the crowd is not thinking that far in the future. They're not even thinking an hour into the future. So we're rubbing shoulders with Carl Jung as well here, right? So I have a quote here by Carl Jung. If people crowd together and form a mob, then the diamondisms, I, I hopefully, hopefully I said that right, the diamondisms, people on this Dynamisms, like have the, learned, Like the dynamic yeah. uh, aspects to the crowd. People have, if, if people have picked anything up from this episode that I can't fucking read. So dynamisms of the collective man are let I, Hold on, let me just stop you really quick because I read this, this quote that I love that says that if someone ever mispronounces a word, never look down on them because it means they learned that word reading it and not having someone else repeat it to them. Thanks, so Thomas. never ever, you know, snicker at someone, oh, they didn't pronounce that right. Because it meant they they taught themselves that word and that's why they don't know how to pronounce it. And if anything, that that might be more noble than just knowing what that word is automatically because they heard it from someone. I'm noble as fuck. You hear that people? That's right, bro. That's right. Thanks, dude. You're the best. <laughs> so the co- the collective man are let loose. So the dynamisms of a collective man are let loose. Beasts or demons that lie dormant in every person until he is part of a mob. Man in the mass sinks unconsciously to an inferior moral and intellectual level to that level which is always there, below the threshold of consciousness, ready to break forth as soon as it is activated by the formation of a mass. Damn, bro, that's that's (laughs) deep. And the way I read this, too, again, is, is almost like, no one's going to spontaneously become a genius uh, in, in a moment, but anybody, even the smartest person in the world, can essentially devolve back into that primitive uh, pugilistic state of just being like a member of a crowd um, and just like following their base instincts. And this is kind of what he's this again. That's like this is the common denominator. So this ties into chapter three, right? We have the idea of crowds, the reasoning power of crowds, the imagination of crowds. Did you have anything in chapter three that you wanted to add before we start moving in? Because I'm going to skip chapter four, a religious shape, assume. Yeah, so I got I got a couple from chapter three I want to get into. Go ahead. So so here's the passage from chapter three. And he says, and this is when he this is when he starts breaking things down into like more and more, um, more specific groups to analyze. Yes. He says, they, as in groups, groups may be divided into two classes. In one, we shall place accidental and passing ideas <laughs> created by the influence of the moment, infatuation for an individual or a doctrine, for instance. In the other group will be classified fundamental ideas to which the environment, the laws of heredity, and public opinion give a very great stability. Such ideas are the religious beliefs of the past and the social and democratic ideas of today. And these two groups that he's kind of talking about is like one where the group and the individuals among it kind of form their own directive and like their own objectives. And the other the other type of a group is one that's almost tapping into this like genetic Akashic records of, of you know, like crowd mentality that it's the public opinion that existed before you. It's it's your genes that existed before you. It's the national history of the location you live in that all existed before and outside of you. But these can also be these like large uh, influences. So he's he's breaking again into these two categories of like individually formed groups that have their own individual goals, and then people that are kind of latching onto these larger movements that almost ripple through history. And I I thought that was really interesting. 
because again, this to your um, points of like the supernatural, right? Like mm-hmm. there's this ball of energy that just kind of represents <laughs> like this historical unrest. And it's almost like if you just like walk by it, it's like it's the eye of horse. Like, oh shit. Like all of a sudden, like I'm a super Patriot. Now I'm like angry <laughs> at stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like that's kind of what he's describing here is that people can get sucked into these crowds, like unbeknownst to themselves almost. Oof, that's scary. Right. Cause like, what if like, it's like, I don't want to say demonic, but it's almost like this force, right? Like the, the, like, like the force. I mean, you could use it for good or for evil. Essentially, you know what I mean? Well, and, and again, as as the instruction manual aspect of this, I mean, you could literally be using it for good or evil. Like, hmm, I'm going to use this crowd to do some really fucked up things. And here I got a couple others that I'm going to read. And I've got sometimes I've got a page where like the whole page is fire and I just put like stickers all over it. And I've got one of those coming up, but I'm just going to cherry pick some quotes. Um, but he, he continues here. He says that it is arguments of this kind that are always presented to crowds by those who know how to manage them. Think about this is that the lizard, this is the Illuminati guy, knowing ahead of time what the crowd's capable of and only introducing the ideas that they think the crowd's capable of. So he says that they are only the arguments by which crowds are to be influenced. A chain of logical argumentation is totally incomprehensible to crowds. And for this reason, it is permissible to say that they do not reason or that they reason falsely and they are not to be influenced by reasoning. On reading certain speeches, astonishment is felt at their weaknesses, yet they had an enormous influence on the crowds who listened to them, but it's forgotten that they were intended to persuade collectives and not to be read by philosophers. So again, like you go back and find some large political speech and at the time, it might have revved up the oh, entire country shit. and it started a war and like, yeah. you know, a whole national movement. But, you know, 50 years later, you're reading it right on paper and you're like, this is kind of fucking weak. And like some of this shit is just straight wrong. But because of the time. that wasn't the point. Yeah, it was it was the time, but it was also the rhetoric. It wasn't the logic or the grammar in it. It was the rhetoric and the way that it was delivered and the vibrato and the enunciation. It makes you think of the all the famous speeches of all time that have been given at these revolutions remove that charismatic speaker and just read the words on the page it's going to lose almost all of its meaning you know what i mean wow like it's it's that cadence and it's the circumstance which the atmosphere right yeah it's all together it does like these speeches don't exist in in bubbles there was a slight Um, wind from the northwest that day that you just really you know just the guy's hair was just moving in the wind or some (laughs) shit you know what i mean like really i mean you have to take all those things into consideration how they say, oh, the planet's aligned today. Well, I mean, that's literally what it is. An- another good example, I don't know if you remember this, but there was when Bernie Sanders was running um, for president, and I think he gave some speech, and, like, in the middle of the speech, like, a dove or something came and, like, <laughs> perched itself on his shoulder. Or, like, I know the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head, or, the fly. Yeah, well, okay, another a great <laughs> example, right, where, like, like this stupid inconsequential unrelated thing happens, but some people take it as like green language or yeah. like this was, you know, a, a sign Twilight from the gods or something. Um, but but this is the kind of, of thinking where like it doesn't require a thought process. It's just like, oh, fly landed on head. He's full of fly shit. Fly dirty. Fly evil. Yeah. Pence evil. Like like these connections. Meanwhile, like, it's a robotic fly. Sense. Like, mm, I'm going to fucking <laughs> land on this dude's fucking forehead right here. Real quick. So let, let me let me keep going before we go on too many tangents. So he says that 
Crowds being only capable of thinking in images are only to be impressed by images. There you go, Simi it is only It is only images that terrify or attract them and become motives of action. Um, and, and you kind of hinted on this already with like all the theatrics and mm -hmm. like the grandiose movements. But again, he's, he's trying to instill in so many different ways. He's saying the same thing that, that a crowd is only going to listen to slogans, to rhyming phrases that are very easy to say and to like the most simple images that they can just put in their mind's eye and focus on that thing. You know, utopia, it might just be. Uh, like a really nice looking city from afar. And that's all they have to keep in their mind and just say, okay, this vague abstract idea is utopia. They don't want to get into like, well, how do social services work in utopia? What if, you know, the natural resources are depleted at certain, yeah, yeah like, no one's, <laughs> no one's saying like, Hey, does this utopia have healthcare? And is there a single payer system? And no one's saying that, you know, it's, it's always just like, Oh no, I'm thinking of this really cool fucking city in the future. What's and the tax that's rate going to be for. like, guys, do you really think that we're going to pull this off? So that, that was all I had for, for chapter three so far. It, so, and I want to point out it's chapter three of book one, cause it's three different books in this thing. And we're working our way through it, you know, just bullshitting. And I really wanted to touch on that, that these crowds use their imagination. And we have here, when someone joins a crowd, they are motivated by the fact that when they are alone, they must take responsibility for their own life and actions. And I have a quote here. In crowds, the foolish, ignorant, and envious persons are freed from the sense of their in in insignificance and powerlessness and are possessed instead by the notion of brutal and temporary but immense strength. And that's also Laban. And... I didn't really dig into the whole uh, racial aspect. I don't know if you have much on that. Uh, I want to. I wanted to skip chapter four. It's a religious shape assumed by the conviction of crowds. Which I mean, you, you could use your imagination again. More. I mean, he symbology. he goes into like um, into nihilism and and yes. into Nietzsche and and what he's explaining this chapter without getting into the weeds because yeah, this one gets a little bit deep. But it's it's <laughs> making assumptions on how crowds react, how crowds form, their motives based on the religions yes. that they might follow or the religions that are in their regions. And this, like, like there's two ways to read that. I mean, there's a million ways to read it, but two main ways to read it is one is like, oh, this dude is just grouping people into mm -hmm. the most convenient labels so that he can continue on this theory. But I feel like he does go to some extent to try and justify why he's doing this. And, and some loose examples, I'm not going to read directly out of it, but he mentions it like, if you're coming from a culture that is heavily based in like paganism and has a lot of pagan gods and pagan rituals and pagan ceremonies, then the same sort of like puritanical Christian motivations and criticisms might not apply. Like you might not be able to rile a crowd up that is so steep in, in pagan uh, religion the same way that you could uh, rile a crowd up that is, you know, very much heavy in like a puritanical Christian aspect of things like they're both crowds. They both share some common denominator, but what motivates them and what triggers them are going to be vastly different things. And I think that he then extrapolates this, not just to religion, but the cultures to regions to like, yeah, if you just happen to grow up within a hundred miles of a certain uh, dynasty or, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, like royalty, then that is going to affect you. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, that does have some play into your your susceptibility to becoming part yeah, of you, one of these you crowds. You grew up listening to reggaeton like in the background and you're like, yeah, yeah. That, sh <laughs> yeah. that shit bangs, bro. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Kissimmee, bro. We're in Kissimmee up in here. That's, that's little Bayamon there, little Puerto Rico. So 
You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's why I didn't want to get too lost in the weeds there. So if you want to learn the esoteric shit of how to control your neighbors and control your association, your homeowners association, just read that part. And you'll be able to be like, oh, I have Indian neighbors here and I can do this, this and this to really, you know, manipulate them. My other ones are Americans. They're white as fuck. So I can do this for them. And he really gets into that. And I wanted to touch on one of the things I, I, I was talking to you on the phone about the prestige, right? About the because he, he mentions the prestige and prestige, prestige. He really nail, nails it in your head like over and over and over again. And, and, and I think when I read prestige in this um, context, I sort of translated that into the word rapport, which might might have been a, a similar translation. I might be wrong on that, but like because when we think of prestige, we're almost thinking of some title and elevation giving to you that makes you like elevated in some but not way only that dude higher. but symbols so uh, there was this lecture that i was getting into where so remember our conscious actions are led by our unconscious mind okay and he constantly refers to prestige and and i put on here i relate that to nietzsche's will to power in a way there's a metaphysical aspect to the parasite within a congregated masses which we didn't talk about the parasite right where the parasite, it starts off with a suggestion. And it, just like a parasite or like a virus, it multiplies just based off that suggestion. Now, the suggestion really kicks, might be what you were talking about, that that poof, you know, that, that one thing. It's like, let's suggest this, let's inject this thing in here and from that sprout and you just have this complex uh, neuron system that just connects over and over again. So it's like a cancer pretty much. I mean, this, and he talked that this exists within congregations of people. Now the prestige you have what you're saying, right? Like, Oh, something that signifies that I'm higher in, in the hierarchy of society than you, you have judges, right? Of back then they had those fucking fake wigs, right? That they said it was used yeah. to hide syphilis and their baldness and all this shit. You have <laughs> the judges with the robes, the Supreme Court, things that might be that dude with the megaphone and Alex Jones with the megaphone, you know, talking about turning the frogs gay and, and all this stuff here. Let me, uh, listen, you son of a bitch. Listen, fuckhead. I don't like them putting chemicals in the you know, water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. He's, you know, he's yelling that megaphone might to them signify this prestige, the way that these people carry themselves, right? Because the, he, he kept saying prestige, prestige. And I'm like, what the fuck is this guy getting out with prestige? You know what I mean? So great power is given to ideas propagated by affirmation, repetition, and contagion. So he refers to the contagion by the circumstance that they acquire in time, that mysterious force known as prestige. So, and, and these are, these are like, like a uh, fucking definitions of logical fallacies. Like one of the yes. big ones is an, is appeal to authority. Like just the fact that the judge has the fancy wig and the robe on, whatever he says somehow has more power than yes. someone not wearing the fancy wig. Exactly. Just, just because he's got authority. He's standing and at a higher podium than you looking down at you. So again, right. this body language, like I'm standing on top of the car talking down on you. So you have to look up to me almost like some sort of false God. So, but he calls it this mysterious force and in Nietzsche's will to power, the will to power is this, like Thelema, right? Will is this thing that manifests itself differently within all men. So you can use it again, like the force, use it for good, use it for evil. Mind you, he's rubbing shoulders with Nietzsche. Okay. This is at the time towards Nietzsche's end. He was, he was insane towards the last 15 years of his life, but that's besides the point. And he is talking about this mysterious force that, that Nietzsche talked about that eventually 
leads you to become the Ubermensch, which is this overman, this higher... The, the Superman. The, su- ex- the Superman, exactly. So, and another one, right? Sup- what are superheroes? There are these symbols of, oh, look, they're super, they're... They're extravagant. They 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 can do more things than I can. They have superpowers. You know what I mean? Like let's 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 worship them. They're almost gods. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, you know the the this idea of the crowd contagion that really just spreads. You know, you have all these things coming together, and 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 you know it's a you have admiration, you have fear, all at the same time. And These are all emotions to point out. These are all emotions. Emotions, exactly. Prestige and reality is a sort of dominion exercise on our mind by an individual, a work or an idea. This domination entire entirely paralyzes, paralyzes, paralyzes our critical faculties. I think that said that right, and fills our soul with astonishment and respect. So, again, it's these. And there's, there's acquired prestige and personal prestige. But I want to focus on the fact that when you have this, right, you have the idea of Nietzsche's will to power because not all hope is lost, right? I, w- I want to also say that because this, ho- this entire time we're like, hey, you're, if you're part of a crowd, you're fucked. You know, this is, there's no overcoming it. There's no, there's no, you know, breaking free of the system. There's, you know, once you're in a crowd, you're sucked. How you mentioned earlier, you're sucked in without your knowing. You don't, you don't know you're in there, but... I want to point out that Laban, although we are always some part of a crowd at all times of our lives, Laban did believe that you were able to achieve some level of freedom, partial freedom and independence of some kind. And he says, uh, Laban maintained the freedom was achievable by bringing forth the ideas, values, and beliefs that are, that we let guide us in our that we let guide us in our lives and he has here a quote the tyranny exercised unconsciously on men's mind is the only real tyranny because it cannot be fought against so if you're able to break free of that mental prison and really see things for what they are and bring forth these ideas that your core values at its its very core you're able to see through the bullshit i mean that's what it really is and you're able to when, become. And this amounts to, at some point, standing up against the crowd or yes. getting up and leaving that crowd once you identify it. But if you if you don't have the ability to identify it in the first place, then then you are kind of screwed. Well, and that's what deter- that's what determines really again this prestige, right? This the, if you either acquire it or you you already have it, and you're almost able to break free. And and I related this because I remember as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about Nietzsche because I, I just did a, a deep dive on Nietzsche not too long ago. I'm thinking about him and his end goal, right? Cause you mentioned nihilism and all this stuff. The overman is to defeat nihilism, to become his own. I don't want to say God, but pretty much become your own God and become, and, and really dictate your own reality because Nietzsche, you know, the famous God is dead and we have killed him. We're the murderers of murderers and et cetera, et cetera. He's not celebrating the death of God. He's actually sad about it. It's like, wait, a life without God, a life without purpose, a life without pursuit is is bad. And that leads you to nihilism. So the overman is there to defeat nihilism. So to, to defeat the idea that that nothing di- dictates nothing and it's just a vast emptiness. But I related this idea of the the you know being able to break free with this uh, this because not all, not all hope is lost, okay? That's what I'm trying to get at. There are ways to defeat this. And this is what we talk about, right? As conspiracy theorists and all this shit, that there is a way to really 
what is it? What is they always say? Real eyes, real lies, or something, something like that. Yeah, real eyes, real lies, real lies. I don't say that often. I've seen it plenty, but yeah. <laughs> a real eyes see or some shit like that. So I mean, if you're oh, able, uh, for for those who have the eyes to see it. Yes, and so we we have this whole aspect that we've talked about about the whole contagion, this unseen force, and all this stuff. And I wanted to get to the 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 crowd hallucinations. Did you get that? You, did you pick up on that? The stories that he talked about? Is this in chapter four? I don't know what chapter it is. Are you, are you, are you reading ahead at this point? Yeah, I'm just going based off of my notes. Uh, did you have anything else in the chapters? We so, can go over so that. in chapter four, I did, I did want to briefly mention, because in all the previous chapters in the first book, they all kind of start out when he has this like index of, here's the topics that we're going to be getting into mm-hmm. in a quick summary. He doesn't do that in chapter four, but he does still have these distinct topics. So I just wanted to, to cover what he mentions. Um, Cause I don't, I don't know if I agree or if I understood his perspective on all of these. So it's, it's interesting to kind of cover them. So the, the very first one is the one that was the hardest for me to understand, I guess. Cause again, like I grew up in, you know, I was born in the 1980s, not in the 1880s. <laughs> and uh, I also grew up in like America and I, I sort of like, um, had my coming of age like online with like a digital friends all across the world and like I, so I, I don't know if I had the exact same mentality as a person that was born in the 1800s that lived in a area and then traveled the world by like foot and very traditional means the the difference between cultures and races to that guy in the 1800s seem you know worlds away from me in the 1980s going through uh, metropolitan city, you know, going to like Chicago and going to New York city as a kid, I don't think I had the same views, but, but with that in perspective, it was very important to him. And he even mentions race as being the number one factor for determining how a crowd acts. And I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to give his first statement on it just to, to show how important it was for him. And maybe we can talk, maybe it makes more sense to you, but it didn't click as much for me, but he says that This factor, race, must be placed in the first rank, for in itself it far surpasses in importance all of the others. We have sufficiently studied it in another work, and he's talking about a previous book, I think it was called The Psychology of Peoples, Mm -hmm. and this is where he breaks down like different races and and cultures, Um, but he says that, therefore it's needless to deal with this again, but we showed in this previous volume what a historical race is, and how its character once formed, it possesses as a result the laws of heredity, power that its beliefs, institutions, and arts, in a word, all the elements of its civilization, are merely an outward expression of its genius. So he's he's now taking like an entire culture or an entire race and turning that into a group and saying that that group is sort of just embodies. Um, and when when he says all the elements of civilization and its genius. It's kind of like all the stereotypes that, that most people assume that are related Puerto to this are lazy. He, yeah. he, he puts it in very nice floral language of like heredity and genius and, and, you know, elements of civilization. But yeah, he's talking about, um, about just complete stereotypes and he's mentioning this as the number one factor. And again, this one was hard for me to assume cause I, cause I feel like, cause you're um, white bro. The, it's all right. 
Well, yeah, because I'm white, and I guess I'm already homogenous, and I'm part of this, like, <laughs> unknown sludge of, like, Anglo-Saxon wasp, you know, culminations. But, um, but like, he clearly thought this was important, and the other people that followed this book clearly took mm. note of that. Yes. Um, his, his next one is, um, so the first one was race. Second one is traditions, and he says that traditions represent ideas, needs, and sentiments of the past. They are the synthesis of race and weigh upon us with immense force. The biological sciences have tra been transformed since embryology has shown the immense influence of the past on the evolution of human things. Now, I don't know why he brings up embryology here as, because, as, as if there's like a... Go ahead. Because it's been scientific... I mean, I don't know at the time, but it's been scientifically proven that fears and ideas are passed down genetically. And I don't know if it was you that I was on a podcast with, but have you ever heard of the flea experiment? The the fleas in the jar? I don't think so, no. So when you take a, a, a group of fleas, right, and you throw them in a jar and you seal the jar up, right, the, the fleas are trying to constantly jump out. Boom, 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 trying to jump out, trying to jump out, trying to jump out. You come back the next day, just 24 hours later, and you open up that jar, the fleas have been trained to only jump so high. They're not able to break out of that firmament that the cap formed. And the, you can take the fleas out of the jar and they will only jump as high as that where they had originally been in that jar up and hitting that cap. And those fleas and their offspring and their offspring offspring will only be able to jump as high as they were able to jump. So it proves scientifically, number one, that fears, right? We have the boogeyman that we introduce to kids to make them go to sleep at night. These fears, we have the chickens. When you flash different shapes above their head, uh, they don't react if you flash a circle, a square, a triangle. But as soon as you flash a, an eagle, the silhouette of an eagle, they fucking flip out. So mm -hmm. these, because again, from the embryo, it start, they said that literally, the, and I'm having a kid next month, so... They said that the most important part of the development of a child is not outside the womb, is in the embryo. It's when it first starts out in the in the mother's womb, you know, inside her body, not on the outside. Oh, and you you go, oh, well, you I mean you can influence them on the outside, but you'd be surprised to see how much they really take in subconsciously, even while they're inside the womb at all times for those nine months. And I mean, so maybe he's hinting at that. You know what I mean? That that the that that's the way I, I saw it. That's that's easy for me to relate to. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not a biologist or psychologist. And neither or anything, am I. But I, I'm just full of I shit. I definitely believe though. Like, like yeah, we're both full <laughs> of shit essentially. <laughs> but but back to that quote where he said that you're looking at the surface of the waves and that pattern is this complicated thing that's happening deep below. I mean that that essentially to me is saying that there's all of these generations of tradition that have shaped your desires and your fears, you know, back for no your reason ancestors. because we don't know. We just follow it. It's tradition. Exactly. Well, you know and, I mean? and this is, these are like those movements in the depths that we have absolutely no knowledge Control. of. And, yeah. the, and the waves are like how we react to things. Cthulhu. In the, the current time it's Cthulhu it always <laughs> goes back to Cthulhu. <laughs> so, so the next one, so he starts out with race. Then he says that, the next biggest uh, factor is tradition. He's kind of going in order of like how important these different elements and to, are to, to the note, crowd. Thomas, this is chapter one of book two, by the way. Uh, well, no, this is. Well, I'm I'm reading from a uh, chapter four of book one. Really? Yeah, chap religious shape assumed by all the oh, convictions shit. of crowds. Well, because he gets in depth into it in chapter one. So, so he factors. starts with race. He goes on the tradition. The third one is time, and he says that. 
In social as in biological problems, time is one of the most energetic factors. It's the sole creator and the sole great destroyer. Oof. It is time that has made mountains with grains of sand and raised the obscure cell of geological eras to human dignity. He's talking about the, the primordial slime evolving <laughs> into you know the human intellect as, as being time. The action of centuries is sufficient to transform any given phenomenon. And it has been justly observed that an ant with enough time at its disposal could level Mount Blanc. Um, so he's, he's just saying, I mean, this is uh, another one of my favorite ways of this on like on an infinite timeline, um, like a, a, a room full of monkeys and typewriters could recreate the entire works of William Shakespeare. It's sort of like time is this this infinite resource that if you could actually utilize all of its infinite possibilities, anything is possible, including, as he literally says here, an ant could level a mountain, um, which, you know, it's, it's hyperbole, but it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about how important time is. Yeah, because, um, I mean, in, uh, a, a droplet of water can really break and weather away at stone with enough time, you know what I mean? They'll, that's literally how rivers are formed. I mean, just water pushing through and pushing through. So it makes makes it's a, it's a, how you said it, it's a nice way to embellish it and really put it into a a digestible form or like a like a little poem if you will so he goes on to and he mentions political and social um, sentiments and then he says of instruction and education and this is where we were talking before about teachers in school and indoctrination and how they can kind of like shape the the people that are going to eventually form these crowds in mm -hmm. the future. And he says that foremost among the dominant ideas of the present epoch is to be found the notion that instruction is capable of considerably changing men um, and has for it unfailing consequence to improve them and even make them equal. This is that concept of like just teach your children and they, they can all rise and kind of become the same, um, you know, capability. But he says... By the mere fact of it com being constantly repeated, this assertion has ended by becoming one of the most steadfast democratic dogmas. It would be as difficult now to attack it as it would have been merely to have attacked the dogmas of the church. And and again, like he's he's steeped in this like 1890s rhetoric and the way that he's describing this. But as I'm reading this, in modern terms, I translate it to teachers are. Um, looked upon with all this dignity and prestige and the f and you can't even um, criticize the mm -hmm. teaching profession or teachers or the without looking like this asshole absolute asshole and again he, he likens it to attacking the dogmas of the church and again in the 1800s thinking back to like the 1700s attacking the dogmas of a church is not the same as like 2020 attacking the dogmas of a church where it's like the status quo you know you almost get you get a blue check mark and all sorts of reddit awards well, now if we you have criticize religion of speech you know we have yeah. all this shit but but he but again in the in the 1800s he's talking about like you can't say anything bad about teachers because everyone's gonna hate you for it mm -hmm. and little does he know that sentiment only increases over time uh, to where it might be at its at one of its biggest heights. I mean, right it now. morphs. So I, I took that as it morphs as time goes on. Right, these teachers become these conglomerates and these other establishments that really take you know you know what I mean. Like it, it turns into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you talk against, right, go, the, the biggest power back then was the church. If you went against them, you were ruled a heretic, you were exiled, and you were sometimes even killed and burned at the stake. 
But nowadays, it's like, oh, well, you're going to go against the mainstream narrative? Who are you? Who are, what's your prestige to be able to talk down on the church, you well, fuck? I, I think you can make a decent argument that previously the church um, was sort of like that massive global conglomerate and you couldn't go against the church. Exactly. But now, now, right now in 2022, I would almost argue that the public education system has fully um, replaced that concept of like church dogmas. Mm-hmm. And now, you know... The, the single public education system as a whole, as one unit, I think probably has more power and more dogmatic principles than all the various religions that, that still sort of exist in their different denominations. And, well, he, and I, I love this. I'm, I'm, I'm already biased towards someone that's critical of public education and, and teaching and stuff. So, um, But he goes on, and I, I love this. He mentions that... Um, it's, it's hard to pick the, the different passages because there's so many here, but he says, the primary danger of this system of education, very properly qualified as Latin, consists in the fact that it is based on the fundamental psychological error that intelligence is developed by learning by heart of textbooks. Adopting this view, the endeavor has been made to enforce a knowledge of as many handbooks as possible, from primary school till he leaves the university, a young man does nothing but acquire books by heart without his judgment or personal initiative being ever called into play. Education consists for him in reciting by heart and obeying. Again, 1800s. Repetition. And this guy's talking about how, you know, um, that the, the education system is a danger because they're just telling you what to read. Exactly. And having you read it and recite it and and say back exactly what I want you to say back to me and don't go and pick out your own books and don't go and do your own studies and come up with your own independent ideas. Just, you know, recite back what I already know and what I expectingly hear because, um, it, it standardizes you. It makes my job easier. It gives me an easier rubric on how to judge you as a person, uh, intellectually, you know, did you finish these answers and mark them correctly versus man, you just had a very independent and creative thought and you've been able to think through it and, come up with this idea there's not enough time for that and and if you want to liken this back to crowd right like a like almost a classroom as a as a crowd you can't necessarily rely on this uh high level um justifications and logic and thinking things through obviously in an academic setting there's a little bit more leniency towards explaining things in depth but still in that crowd you have to cater to that lowest common denominator and answer again you know this whole issue of public you education have to go where, at the pace of the lowest intellectual kid in that class so it goes yep. back to the whole crowd mentality because you the whole the whole class can move on but if that one remember that one kid that would never really get it before the teacher moved on and the teacher had to spend some <laughs> extra time on him well and you spent another week reviewing that chapter and then you didn't catch up and, and then also in school now you've got remedial classes where they try to isolate those kids that slow the class down they all put them into remedial classes then mm-hmm. they got the normal class which is where everyone kind of fits in the middle then they have in some cases like gifted or challenge programs where it's like slightly more difficult versions and then you've got like ap level where it's you know you're almost taking college classes in the middle of high school um but these four ways of separating people again it's it's separating them in the crowds so that that ap group of students isn't necessarily adhering to the lowest common denominator of the remedial students um, but it, but in my mind, it's kind of a fucked up way of doing it because it in, instead of addressing the fact that 
everyone might learn at a different rate and that you can teach, you know, the same lesson differently to different people in the same setting. It's like, no, no, the answer here is to like put all the dummies together and all the smart people together <laughs> and treat them as though they're equals because you're never going to find that, that like homeostasis in people, you know, no two people yeah. are ever going to be alike like that. What else you got on there, dude? So we can uh, link it up to the hallucinations. That's what that really, yeah, that really fascinated me. So the um the the final thing that I've got is just the last statement from chapter four, which is the conclusion to book one, and he says, he and he's kind of like um asking some rhetorical questions here. He says, "Have we digressed in what proceeds from psychology of crowds?" Assuredly not. If we desire to understand the ideas and beliefs that are germinating today in the masses and will spring up tomorrow, it's necessary to know how the ground has been prepared. The instruction given the youth of a country allows a knowledge of what that country will be one day. The education accorded to the present generation justifies the most gloomy provisions. It is in part by instruction and education that the mind of the masses is improved or deteriorated. It was necessary in consequence to show how this mind has been fashioned. And again, he's, he's going into, have you ever heard of the Fabian society? Mm -mm. So the, the Fabian society without going on a crazy tangent, their symbol is their logo is literally a wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> and this society kind of came together. And what made them unique is that they planned things out 50 and a hundred years in advance in ways that they have actually taken effect. Um, so this isn't just like a small group of people that are doing these immediate things. Fabian society represents this very slow, um, very like planned version of molding the future. And he's kind of linking in my mind, this concept of like public education and statewide education to something like this Fabian society where you like, you consciously know, Hey, if I instill these ideas in the youth, and then follow them and help them adapt those ideas as they get into adulthood. Like that whole, like youth is the future. Well, like let's instill the ideas that we know we want them to have in the future. And to, to make an even wider correlation here, like the, the Hegelian dialectic mm -hmm. where you've got the, what is it? The, the um, problem, the, the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis. So again, in, in the concept of Fabian society and the concept of planting ideas in public education for the youth, it's like, I've got this thesis and I can develop the opposite version of that, control both of them in this education system, wait 50 years or whatever for these kids to grow up and start conflicts over mm -hmm. these different ideas that we've planted in them. And now when they're in a conflict, we already know like what their grievances are and what their approaches are because we gave them, we wrote those, the manual, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, we wrote their manuals and now we're like, well, we, we can give you guys the perfect answer because like, we know all the, the buzzwords, we know what got you pissed off. So here's the perfect solution for this. And that just, it's this repeating sort of formula that goes over and over. And it, it might seem like connecting these wild dots, but again, if we go back to this constant theme where he's talking about this elite class that sort of stands above the crowds and is able to control them. I mean, that's, again, this is a manual for somebody. It's not a manual for the, the dummy that's in the, the crowd that's the lowest common denominator. This is the, the manual that was written for that prestigious um, elite that he keeps talking about. And if they didn't read it, they definitely understood the psychology of these crowds to begin with. 
So absolutely. I mean, you see that all throughout history. It's problem, you know, it's idea, problem, solution, you know, idea, problem, solution over and over and over and over again. And I mean, that's the way it's always been since the beginning of time. You know what I mean? And we, and, and it's formed these sects within, even in, in within society uh, of stuff, right? Like the generation before had completely different ideas than the generation now. So now they're fighting with the generation from before and they're passing all these laws in favor of one group. And, but then the other group is getting pissed off because, Hey, you know, I don't want to identify as a toaster. You know, I grew up Christian Pentecostal. I'm not a toaster. You know, I'm a, I'm a real boy. Yeah, it's, it's just that pendulum. that just keeps swinging from one extreme to the other. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've, I've got another e- even more simplified version of that Hegelian dialectic, which is a little bit of a stretch, but cause it's, it's such like a high level concept that, people have written like volumes of books on just this one concept. But another way that I like to think of it is um, in like every cheesy kids movie or like cartoons, there's this plot of like um, a guy wants to impress a girl or a guy wants to impress somebody else. So they like stage a mugging. They have their friend like mug Mm -hmm. this person and then they come in and they save the day and they like defeat the mugger and they give the person their purse back or whatever. So they become this hero and in my mind, that's that's like the most oversimplified version of this Hegelian dialectic where the there's the thesis and the antithesis. This is the robber attacking and then the hero coming to stop the robber. And then the synthesis is essentially like, hey, is there a reward involved here? Or it's like, hey, can we go out on a date because I just saved your life? Or or some other version of that where it's like, I, I already knew what the conflict was going to be. Mm-hmm. I knew what the resolution of that conflict was going to be. And because I have full control over both of those dynamics, I also get to somehow influence the outcome of when those things come together and get resolved in the form of like, hey, I was the good guy here. You know, give me my, my credit, whether it's a reward or my name in the paper or a date or whatever. Um, very oversimplified, but I feel like that's a, a decent description of this concept of creating the problem having the solution and then being the one in control of both of them. You got, you got anything else that you wanted to point out? Just that uh book two is probably going to be even deeper than book one was. <laughs> I'm trying to find where they're talking about the murder of the little girls. And then the story about the ship, unless that was the, I mean, we got to leave a little bit of icing on the cake for the next one. Right? Yeah. So I wanted to get into the, so there's a story that these little girls were drowned, right? And they, they, it wasn't true. It turned out that the entire family and the entire town, right? Because the mom identified, like it was like a, a bracelet or something on the little girls or like a scar or something. And again, the crowd contagion, the, the collective, they all hallucinated all together through suggestion. And it started off with the one person that was like, Hey, wait, I recognize that little girl or these little girls. And they had this, this funeral and everything. And then it turns out after the fact, the little girl showed up, the ones that were missing, they weren't dead. It was a hallucination, a collective hallucination through the crowd because of the contagion that made all these people believe that these little girls were actually dead when they actually weren't. And there's another one, Julian Felix, he was a naval lieutenant, and he wrote the book uh, Sea Currents. And it talks about how the crew saw a ship, right? They were looking for the remnants of this other ship. And the people saw, the the entire crew saw in the distance, people waving and shit. Like, oh. And the watcher that was at the top of the ship was like, hey, look down there. That's the suggestion. That's the, the suggestion over there. 
So they all start seeing these people on the ship waving, and even then some of them start to hear them calling to them, like, oh, I, yeah, yeah, I, I hear them calling. When they pull up to the to the whatever it was that they were looking at, it was just a bunch of branches just put together. It was just... <laughs> But again, through suggestion, through the to, through the contagion as a collective, they all hallucinated because of the influence of one person. Again, so you have the one person influencing them. And sometimes, not all the time, are they these prestigious people, but it just takes that one little spark, the one little idea to really stir up the pot and make everybody believe. And I mean, you see that now. I mean, like, oh, look at look at the COVID narrative. All. Oh, the people in China are falling in the streets. Where the fuck were all those people falling in the street here? The mask narrative. Well, if he's wearing a mask, I'm going to wear a mask. So they all start wearing masks, you know, not trusting the science. No, fuck the science. You know, this, you know, this science says that it helps. This other science says it doesn't, whatever, you know, but through Fauci, through the NIH, through these aristocracies that are at the top, looking down, dictating where these crowds are going to go. People are believing and literally falling in line with the ideology that they're trying to push. Plus, you have the media also, you know, putting these seeds in of suggestions and things in there. And people take it for 100 percent true and they start I mean, to hallucinate. You could you could easily start bringing this into like, a, was it Project Bluebeam, um, which yes. is where NASA or whoever um, <laughs> stages like the, yeah. the next coming of Christ or an alien invasion. I mean, it that could essentially be NASA in that case is that person on the bird's watch looking down and saying, hey, look, there's people down there. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is NASA there's being aliens. like, hey, look, there's, there's oh, aliens yeah. coming. Yeah. There's and all aliens. it might take is, I mean, if you go back and look at like the MK Ultra records, I think from like the 50s when they're actually trying some of this stuff out, they were just going to say that it was Jesus and then just light a bunch of fireworks and stuff off. And they were, they were sort of re- relying on implanting that suggestion and then people seeing the fireworks and then those people themselves coming to the conclusion, oh, this is the second coming or this is an alien invasion. And then that creating this like mass panic. Yeah. Again, this mass hallucination of all. Yeah. And I think that's really how some conspiracies are also born where you have a collect again. Unfortunately, you know, I'm, I might be a heretic for saying this, but it's no. a collective. It's a collective of people that would come together and we talk about this shit all the time. And we start to believe these things. But how I mentioned earlier, there is not. That's why I always say that there's there. You need to have some healthy skepticism. And that's what I like about talking to you, Thomas, where you challenge my ideas and call me out on my shit. Like, well, where'd you get that from? Well, dude, it's just a conspiracy. Nah, bro, you can't just. <laughs> so, put this yeah, shit sometimes out. you'll say something or nothing. And that actually sounds like bullshit. And I want to know where you <laughs> found it. And I'm going to look it up for you and let you know. Yeah. But you know what I mean? But, uh, skeptic. Well, another good version of this, too, is like consider if, if we went on a show and it was nine conspiracy theorists and we were having a roundtable on Flat Earth or something. And, you know, eight of those people fully um, embraced Flat Earth. I'll tell you, just from my own psychology, I might not be the one out of the nine that's like shitting all over Flat Earth theories. If anything, I might in that situation be more receptive and like, okay, well since the crowd that I'm in right now is fully invested in this flat earth theory, I'm going to talk about the ways that I think it's, you know, maybe um, like ways that it makes sense to me or, or certain aspects that feel like they are, you know, we deserve a little bit more research or introspection. But again, like that, that crowd setting being a crowd, it's not the crowd that's like, Hey, let's stop for a second and just think for 20 minutes 
is flat earth actually makes sense? Like what's the rational logic in that very, um, it's, it's not very frequent that that kind of discussion would come up because the, the sort of the topic and the people that comprised of that crowd or in that round table, they already sort of represent this mass, you know, hallucination or, or whatever they're always going to go into. I mean, it's the same aspect of like group think and mass psychology where you see the examples where like a, an elevator opens up and like, five people are facing like the opposite direction and the, and the dude walks in and like, they also face, you know, they like, they face the wall or something. Uh, it's just this group suggestion where you don't want to feel like that person in the tribe that's about to get kicked out and starved to death. You know, it taps into this very primal need to kind of fit in. And I, and I feel like this has a huge, um, impact on this like group hallucination that you're mentioning yeah yeah and, and it, it's it's very easy to get lost in the sauce right because i mean it all sounds that's, cool. that's a good way to put it yeah, lost in the sauce because it, it broke because it sounds cool right like i like the whole idea of these lizard people and all this shit but does it like how you said does it really make sense if you step back and start looking at the bigger picture does it make sense but the embellishment of this language of this of this idea of oh it sounds fucking awesome it's, you know, you can dismiss everything else. And well, I would, I would say that uh, another more practical way is stepping back and recognize, Hey, if, if this topic came up and if the people are talking about it in these very, um, visual ways and these very emotional ways, and they're using rhetoric and straw mans and things like, again, if you know your logical fallacies, you can see these as they're coming at you and be like, wait a minute. Like, I understand the sentiment behind that statement, but it doesn't actually make sense if you break it down. You can't bring that up in the crowd, but you can you can think that in your own mind, you know? Yeah, if you, if you get to that point, <laughs> if you're able to do that. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? I think we covered pretty much a lot of the bases. I didn't really get into the whole race thing because, like you said, it gets pretty convoluted and he starts ta you know, talking about the angle well, and he's, and he's re referencing um, certain dynamics from the 1800s and I'm not enough of an international historian to to really relate to the things that he's saying I understand the concept behind it but I don't understand when he says that like Spaniards won't be um, like I'm just making like an example up here but he says something like Spaniards might not be as um, resistant to like violent revolution mm -hmm. versus like the Dutch or something mm -hmm. And like, to me, I don't, I don't understand that. I can't process it because it was so far removed from me. What do you rate this book, bro? Do you think it's, uh, I mean, I enjoyed reading it. I think it was an easy, it was, aside from all the big words that I don't know, I think it was a pretty easy read. <laughs> and I think, I, I mean, I, I learned a lot from, from really diving into this and I, and I see it from a different picture now. And it's a lot of the things that we've talked about, but now it actually has a name to it. You know what I mean? Like now the voice has a face to it type of thing. Yet, so the thing that impresses me the most, too, is that constantly I have to read this and be like, this is over 100 years old, well over 100 years old, the, the things he's writing. And this, again, was, was the third book that he worked on, which is sort of built on top of the first two, which I think he started in, like, the 1860s or something. So, again, like, the level of insight that this guy has and some of these profound conclusions he comes up with seem way far ahead of his time. And that, that's probably the thing that impresses me the most about this whole book. What would you rate it? Uh, I don't like to do number scores. I'll just be like, is it is it worth skimming? Is it worth reading the entire thing? Or is it worth buying and having a copy of? 
I would rate it. It's worth reading the entire thing. You might not necessarily need to like own a copy and refer back to it. I, I really do think it's a book that you could read one time in, you know, completely mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll instill itself into your brain. It's, it's not information that is so abstract that you're going to forget it in a month. It, a lot of these concepts will just like latch into your brain and, and I, I really do think, like, you read it, and 10 years from then, you might see yourself in a crowd and be like, oh, shit, this is a Gustave Le Bon moment. Let me let me back up or, you know, something. Like, that will just be, like, almost through osmosis. It'll just be part of your knowledge. So, um, yeah, on my, on my rating from skim it, read it, buy it, I say read it. And I thought it was necessary, right, because this show is about these obscure books. I had never heard about this until obviously the Freemason pointed it out to me. I was like, Hey, let's, <laughs> you want to manipulate some people today? And I'm like, what are you talking about, bro? So obviously I got into it, but I agree with you. I think it is a book that you should actually read. Not so much skim through because it, it, he throws in these curveballs where you're like, damn, that sounded really good. I love the way that he put that. And there are a lot of ideas in here that again, can get very convoluted when you start putting race into it and start, he starts talking about how certain people are, able to be more manipulated than others, but it was again, a product of its time. So you also have to keep that in mind and dynamics have changed even nowadays. So who knows if a lot of these things still are relevant today, but it has changed a little bit. So I, that's why I wanted to really talk about on the show because you know, we're the occult book club. This is a, a, a more of an esoteric book because it focuses on a certain bank of knowledge, if you will, right? The, the certain aspect, which that's what esoteric is. It's knowledge on a certain specific topic that is not, you know, maybe not the, the regular layman may be able to understand, you know, the regular, that one weak link in the group may be able to understand. And not until you had brought it up to me, did I hear about this? And I think it's fucking fascinating. What do you feel that we should do next as far as covering what's the next book that you had in mind? Have you had any? Uh, so, so far we've been kind of focused on these, these public domain hundred years older or longer so that we can just straight read passages out of them and not have to worry about, uh, copyright and stuff. But I absolutely want to do maybe some more formal book reviews of slightly more modern books. Um, I brought up the art of memory by Francis Yates with you. That would be a fucking amazing one. There's one, uh, called practical magic, I think by Richard Bandler, which is an NLP book and it, and it breaks down like that. Like if you were to take the crowd and say, okay, this is a manual on how to control crowds. You can take the practical magic, the NLP book as an instruction manual on how to control your own brain and to change your emotions and your mentality based on what you want in the moment on context, almost like a computer program, just like hitting a function. So I would, I would love to get into those. Although those are from the fifties through the seventies, I think. Um, so we wouldn't be able to just straight read verbatim passages. We'd have to sort of come up with some notes and then, you know, cover what we we, we gathered from them. But I think I really want to go on on some of those directions because because I wonder how many people listening have ever even heard of um, the Art of Memory by Francis Yates, and I had I find it one of the the most fucking mind blowing books that you can read today. Yeah, I think for the next one, dude, I think we should read the entire work as a whole and then. You focus on X, Y, Z, and I focus on X, Y, Z. That way we're not jumping over each other. You know what I mean? We read the whole thing, but then I'm going to focus on chapters one through five or whatever, and you focus on chapters five through ten. 
tell me what you liked and the stuff while I'm reviewing it. And then I'll tell you the stuff that I liked on your stuff while you're reviewing it. That way we don't step on each other's toes and there's a little bit more structure than, cause I mean, I like jumping around too. Cause it's all relevant. Like that's the problem with it. Like if I could highlight this. Entire well, well, I find book. we usually hone in on like the exact same, like out of all the, the hundreds of pages in here, like there were three or four where like we both wanted to read the same passage because it both spoke to us. You know what I mean? Yeah, because so yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's fascinating. So yeah, we'll we'll see what we do next. And I really enjoyed this episode. Two almost three hours of just again. I mean, this is a manual. If you want to learn to control people and really dig into the psyche of of individuals, I mean, take take a and and I always read these two as as self defense books. Like yes. now that I know how this works, I can use this for self defense, Probably not necessarily. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to go out and start commanding crowds because I don't have any <laughs> crowds at my disposal yet. Uh, but now, I, at least, I can I can see when this these techniques are being used against me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You need to. It's one thing knowing that you're in a game versus when you don't know you're in a game. So I I, I absolutely agree with you that these these pieces of work are crucial to be able to really decipher the matrix, if you will, and really see through the bullshit and not be manipulated and fall into that category of the weakest link in the crowd. So if you guys want to check it out, it's the crowd, a study of the popular mind by Gustav Le Bon written in 1895, 1896, very, very in depth. And I, I really enjoyed it, dude. I enjoyed this and I think this one awesome. Um, I hope that someone else out there end up reading part of this book and having their mind blown too. Cause I, it feels like a very obscure book that no one would come across unless it was, pointed out to them specifically unless you're a freemason yeah absolutely unless you're a freemason that's required reading <laughs> on on uh the first week yeah you want to plug your shit thomas for for those yeah, that once stuck again with us uh, this long? paranoidamerican.com you can read a whole bunch of free comics uh see a bunch of crazy conspiracy theory related artwork i'm talking uh jfk assassination pinups uh we're talking um uh Posters with Disney and Nazis that explain the the whole backstory of Disney as an undercover FBI agent on one picture. We've got posters of uh, Aleister Crowley and George Bush and Barbara Bush as a nice little Father's Day get together. Uh, I've got MK Ultra pamphlets. We've got comic books about time traveling, conspiracy theories, and books about taking psychedelics and meeting ancient philosophers. So if any of that sounds interesting at all to you, paranoidamerican.com and then paranoidamerican on Instagram. Awesome. Awesome. Make sure to follow me on social media at the one one podcast on all social media platforms, patreon.com slash the one one podcast, Rockfin. Join the telegram. All the links will be in the description. And thank you again, Thomas. We'll plan for the next one and I'll see you guys on the other side. Bye. Peace.